0: Uh, welcome everyone to Science Society, and of course a special welcome to you, André. And before we start, let me give the audience a brief introduction so they get to know you a little bit if they don't know you already. So Professor Dr. André Hultz, he is a professor of chemistry and biochemistry at Caltech, and um, he's a faculty scholar at huge um, medical institute. And um, he did his bachelor in science and chemistry at the University of Freiburg in Germany, and then his master's um, in chemistry and biochemistry at the University of Freiburg. And then he did his PhD in structural biology and biochemistry at the Rockefeller University. And um, he won many awards. You can check everything out in the chat. I shared the lab website. Um, And um, yeah, it's such an honor having you here, Andre. And uh, if you could let us know how you kind of figured that you wanted to become a scientist or or become a researcher. Mm
1: -hmm.
0: Was it something, I don't know, a childhood dream, something, you know, your parents wanted you to do? Or maybe, you know, a class you took or at the yeah. university, whatever it is, it's interesting yeah. to learn. Thank you.
2: Well, first of all, thank you very much um, for having me. Um, it's really great. It was a long time in the um, in the making, so I'm happy that this finally worked. Um, how I got into science. Um, I think this was not necessarily something that was, um, put into, you know, my, you know, baby bed, <laughs> from my parents, it's, um, actually, I, this is, um, um, when I was in school in the beginning, I was actually really bad in chemistry. And, um, that was fundamentally because, the um, teachers really at the end did not, um, um, conceptually teach any of the subject. And I think that changed. And uh, I had this glory sort of like combination of um, going to an economics high school to really have a career in some totally different manner and had a um, chemistry teacher who was um, a scientist that uh, was recruited to become a teacher because there was a huge shortage of um, teachers in Germany, especially for the sciences. And uh, he really, at the end, um, um, made science or made chemistry really come alive. And um, Similarly, I had a biology teacher who, at the end, um, did that, and so I was one of the really few people in um, um, in, in in sort of like this uh, chemistry teacher's career who actually had this combination of uh, economics and world economics, you know, microeconomics and um, bookkeeping and um, and uh, and chemistry, and so they, at the end, inspired me to become a biochemist, and. Um, that was really difficult to actually study in, um, in in Germany because there were only a handful of universities that had biochemistry degrees, and um, it was difficult to get in. And uh, even if you had perfect grades in some way or another, you had to wait for a long time. So I studied chemistry in Freiburg who had um, um, a biochemistry track. And um, this at the end set me up pretty much for um, sort of like the passion that I developed for structural biology which is fundamentally dealing with um, the chemistry of um, of life and how basically really large molecules work and how they carry out different functions.
0: Yeah, that's yeah. really wonderful that you had the teacher that kind of brought these yeah. fields alive. It's so important to have a great teacher, I think. So, yeah, um,
2: in many ways, you know, unsung heroes. And um, I think this is really, the, I mean, this is, I mean, I'm really at the end also very interested because of that to work with a lot of, I mean, I have high school students in, in my lab who do research because I think there is a real chance to, to attract um, somebody to really um, change the world. And so this is the time to do that
0: yeah i agree it's it's wonderful um it's a wonderful story and that you keep um bringing you know giving that back to to the young kids um again that's that's also really you know inspiring it's a it's a beautiful story and i agree teachers should you know get more credit for the lives you know what we become (laughs) so they should be invited, like, when we get our PhD or something, <laughs> like, important teachers, I feel like would be nice to have them there. And um, and then from, you know, you discovered kind of your passion for biochemistry and large um, molecules. Um, so h- how did then um, this project come about? Like, was it something that people kind of thought you crazy or you know like was it well, <laughs> difficult in the beginning like did nothing work and then all of a sudden it worked or was it really the opposite and everything was just wonderful or no no like no you?
2: of course not i think i mean the, um i mean the, um, the nuclear pore complex is sort of like a structural biology target um that is something that actually um, goes back a really long time for me because when I interviewed for graduate schools and um, um, i was at um, I was at rockefeller and what they had done at the time was that the faculty that was unbelievably accomplished they actually really did not give um, a lot of talks on campus they went everywhere in the world but not really not on campus and so what they did is is they had um one person i mean that like two visits or so um, for each of the recruitments and um they would pick one of their faculty members to present, which ultimately, of course, attracted a huge crowd also from the nearby institutions. And so when I interviewed there, it was actually a funny thing in many ways, because I interviewed and um, Gunther was the um, uh, global, um, who I basically worked with later for a long time. Um, he gave a talk on the nuclear power complex. And so um, fortunately, he passed away. But he was an unbelievable. Um, Scientist. He was so excited about his, about, um, you know, cell biology and the architecture of the cell. And um, it was like larger than life. And he really loved architecture. And so he basically gave this completely captivating talk about the nuclear pore complex and the tentacles that reach into the cytoplasm. And he really made this uh, come alive. The problem at the end was that uh, nobody really knew in detail how that thing really looked like. And so this was really something that at the end um, was sort of like, you know, um, pointed out, uh, you know, in the, you know, 97, a long time ago. And um, I, I did um, come to a, um, um, Rockefeller and I, I worked um, on the regulation of kinases, which are at the end, sort of like, you know, there was at a cutting edge at the time, but these are molecules that are sort of like in the 50 kilodalton range, you know, it's like between 5,000 and 10,000 atoms maybe. And so that was something that, um, that was generally something that was possible. Thinking about, um, you know, um, uh, working on a project like the nuclear pod complex was absolutely out of reach if one is honest about it. And so, a lot of things have happened in the, in the '90s. Um, um, one of the efforts, for example, was structural genomics, where people tried to solve structures of all of the proteins that are in our bodies. And that, at the end, um, from sort of like a, an accomplishment perspective. Um, had sort of like you know moderate um, um, success at least um, for the for human proteins, but it basically allowed um, for structure determination and data collection to basically um, do this much more readily. There's a lot of technology development that at the end went into this, and so when I finished my um, PhD. Um, during that time, my advisor moved from Rockefeller to Berkeley. And I basically just had grown crystals of a really important brain kinase. And, um, um, I didn't really want to move with him. And so I found another, another home. So it's like, I was in John Curry's lab and I stayed, he stayed my uh, official advisor, but I basically found a home at Rockefeller to basically carry out experiments. And that was in the global lab. And, um, Without that stay, I would probably have never touched the nuclear pore complex because the, at that time there were a lot of papers that um, were published. They were not really all that visible. They were for specialists in the field, but there was a lot of conversations about it. And um, fundamentally, people tried to basically figure out of how all of these different proteins from the nuclear pore complex would fit together. And, in the end, um, allowed sort of like you know for somebody who would, who was dreaming at the end to say it's like, you know we are trying to solve this." And so another person who was in that lab was Thomas Schwartz, who's now a professor at MIT. And so he and I we basically sort of structure side by side in the lab and we sort of like you know um um you know facilitate a lot of the conversations and fundamentally sort of like stitched out of how you would get for you know one subcomplex how you could at the end um get that structure at least and then at the end bootstrap from this and so that is fundamentally how that at the end sort of like started but the real the real unusual thing sort of like for my career was that Günther. And I sort of like finished my PhD. He basically at the end said, you know, it's like, oh, you have this unbelievable passion for the nuclear power complex, you know, don't you want to work on the structure here in the lab? And so that is a little bit um, like you are suggesting, you know, somebody, um, you know, start um, shoveling a huge mountain of sand. And this is going to take it a thousand years if you do this by yourself. And um, that was not possible. And so I, the answer was like, well, it's a one-man show. I really cannot have any impact on this. And so he did something that was pretty stunning. He offered me to basically start my own lab in his lab, and so "It's like, well, you offer, you recruit." people who want to join this effort and um you start um doing this and start your own lab in my lab and so without even having completely graduated i basically was offered to start my own lab and that was fundamentally funded by Günther's um funding from howard Hughes and sort of like an obvious chipped on on the individual project and so that was a pretty amazing that was a pretty amazing offer and that basically also makes me in many ways a really poor sort of like you know resource for how to basically navigate to to you know you know get the faculty position interview because for me fundamentally the thing was i mean this was it basically started this way and then we basically had success in in doing this but no it was at the end something that was a pretty Wild idea to work on the on the nuclear pro complex. A lot of people rolled their eyes and they said, "Well, you're gonna get a couple of better propellers and alpha helical solenoids, but you know, you're certainly not going to solve the structure." But in my mind, I didn't have you know the dream of solving the structure. I wanted to see the thing move and do things, and that at the end is um, um is uh, you know in many ways still a frontier. We have like the you know, the first the first you know movie that shows some movement, but fundamentally we don't really understand you know how the thing is really working. But now at the time, it was something that in principle was feasible if you really wanted to invest a lot of time. But a lot of people thought that um, this would not really um, go anywhere. And um, it has been quite a journey, you know, the last 20 years to basically chip at the problem, sort of like a structure at a time.
0: Wow, that's a wonderful story. Um, It's really amazing. And I'm so glad that this opportunity was offered you because it led to all this progress and you know now to this conversation but um you know to to this to this research results and uh, we know now um so much more because of that you know that offer so um yeah it's it's uh, such a beautiful story of support and people working together because sometimes you know all these other stories um, overshadow like these uh, nice and um, yeah, very, very supportive stories. (laughs) Well, I I mean, yeah,
2: well, it's in, in many ways, I think, you know, I think he really, I mean, this is the, um, this is the unfortunate thing in in some ways. He passed away in 2018. I really wish he would see how the thing at the end really looked because it was, um it's a pretty incredible he would call it a magnificent structure and look at the, um you know the tentacles and all of this i mean he really had an unbelievable passion for for science which even after he won the nobel prize you know he was like a was like a little kid i mean he really was very happy when things happen in the lab and it's like no this is really amazing you have to push forward so i'm at the end it's like i treasure my time at uh at rockefeller tremendously it was um especially in the, in the nineties, it's like a lot of people that, um, you know, at the very top of the, of the science enterprise. And you see sort of like, you know, the passion that they had for, for the work that was going on in their lab. And also at the end, you know, nurturing people's careers. I mean, so many people that came through that at the end are now running major labs at, um, essentially all of the major institutions.
0: Yeah. The, I kind of, um, understand that, the that sentiment because um, you know when I started you know doing my maths that was still in Germany um, I felt like the environment at the university was like very supportive like very different from as if you would work in the industry of course Mm -hmm. also when people go on conferences together and Do you think that kind of changed, like when I then first moved to the US, also my professor, you know, it was more like he would help us like a family member more and invite us Mm. to the home. Do you think that kind of changed? Because I feel like it's not like that anymore. When I see people studying their labs, it's kind of, they would never think of driving people around that moved here to like get groceries I saw so the <laughs> first month you know because when you move to the u.s the first time we moved to north carolina if you don't have a car you have nothing like yeah. <laughs> do you think that kind of changed that kind of very supportive i think
2: i think it probably depends on the places i mean i think it's also probably something that is different um depending on whether you have been in the same situation right i mean the people who come um, sort of like in my lab, I'm at the end, I always wondering, and you know, was like, you know, how do you make it to, you know, when all the suitcases and they come, you know, from the airport, you drive home and there's been a long flight to get here. And so, I mean, this is, um, yeah, no, I do at the end, I do think at the end, you know, it was like a lab is pretty much like a family in many ways, right? I mean, a lot of the people in my lab, my lab is unbelievably diverse and international. People come basically from all over the, all over the world. They you know, for the most part, leave everything behind their families, their friends, and they basically go on to, you know, some adventure. And so the lab is really at the end, you know, it's the first group of people that at the end is supporting all of this. Um, I'm not sure that, you know, it changed in, in, in sort of like other places. I think the, um, Rockefeller in particular, when I came there um, was a really international place at that time too. It was a really unbelievable community. Um, I've not been there now for you know for fifteen years. I don't know how this is um, you know today, but I hope it. I mean, it, it probably still is like this. I mean, I sent um, undergrads who have been in my lab. They are now graduate students there. I mean, they really enjoy the environment um, as well. So I, I think it's probably very dependent on institutions. Probably also very dependent on on different labs.
0: Yeah, that's true. A friend of mine, she was at Rockefeller during her PhD. Her Professor was from Switzerland, then they moved at some point there. I feel like the environment was very much like that. At NYU, I don't feel like it's like that at all. But yeah, I guess it depends uh, where you go. And um, so thank you so much for giving us kind of a peek behind the curtain, like a story behind the research. It's really wonderful to learn about, you know, your story, your path. To get you know, to to get here to this research, um, and um, yeah, so everyone, the slides are pinned on top of the room. Feel free to access them, and uh, Andre, the, the stage is yours. Thank you.
2: Oh, thank you very much. Well, okay. So, um, what I'm trying to do is, um, um, to basically try not to lose, um, um, people, you know, and I'm trying to point out, the, the slide numbers. If I don't, um, 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 please let some, um, somebody, um, uh, remind me if, if you at the end get lost, um, fundamentally what I, what I decided, I will do today is just to um, first sort of like, you know, Tell you a little bit about sort of like um, what sort of like classic methods are to visualize um, structures at atomic resolution, and then sort of like you know trying to extrapolate from there how you would do this for the nuclear pore complex, and sort of like highlight a couple of um, um, major advances along the road. Because it's like a lot of the um, approach was basically invented step by step over the last twenty years or so. And so let me just start here um, and go to um, um, basically the, the third slide, which is basically just trying to remind everyone um, about things that you can see and not see with your eye and what you can see with um, other sort of like helps. Um, obviously, you know, it's like with your eye, you can see things that are basically at the end, um, sort of like the thickness of, um, of a human hair or something like this. And if you want to magnify further, eventually with microscopes, um, light microscopes, you hit um, a limit of, um, of the resolution, which of course is uh, limited by the wavelengths um, of the light you're using, and you can sort of like extend that all the way to atomic resolution using um, electron microscopes, especially with the onset of um, um, new detectors and, um, and motion correction, and um, uh, Werner kuhlband calls this uh, the uh, resolution revolution in electron microscopy, but traditionally um, uh, the only method that was available to really visualize um, biomolecules or proteins or vitamins and things like that uh, was X-ray crystallography. And I think what most people May not know is at the end that um, if you sort of like go and um, go back the last hundred years and sort of like you know some of the hallmarks you know when vitamin structures were solved, amino acid structures were solved, the structure of alpha heli- of the alpha helix was solved. That basically every decade or so um, the complexity of the system and the number of atoms doubled, and so this is basically going on all the way to today. And so if you go to the next slide, um, if you solve structures by by crystallography. Um, it's basically a process where you're fundamentally at the end, um, um, you're trying to um, get a large quantity of um, whatever sample you want to study. If you want to you know, get a structure of DNA, you get DNA samples, but if you work on proteins, you have to find some way of um, getting a lot of material. and so. That, of course, sometimes causes a huge challenge, because um, think about, you know, uh, the photoreceptor, Uh, people that study this would purify rhodopsin out of cow eyes or cow retinas, and they needed 200 retinas to get a small quantity to actually study it. And so, but you need to have a large um, amount of material, because ultimately you crystallize this. And at the end if you have a really well ordered crystal you basically can put that into an x-ray beam and um um if it's well ordered it will generate diffraction and you can use the, um, um the spots of the diffraction data to basically infer um 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 the electron density and from that you can calculate or interpret um um basically the positioning of the atoms in many ways if you go to the next slide this is very similar to a process that i'm sure every one of you knows which is at the end you know if you ever made rock candy when you were a kid um or you know if you think about how people at the end um make cane sugar you basically at the end you squish this out from um from um from the from from sugar canes and um when the water evaporates you can basically get out of the juice from the from the stems or from the stalks you can basically get um crystallized um sugar and so um what happened in the 90s um for for structural biologists? Um, was really uh, in in many ways liberating, that allowed sort of like for more complex structures to solve, traditionally people could basically get structures of things that were really abundant. So it's not by accident that um, um, uh, Max Perutz and John Cantrell solved um, the structures of myoglobin and hemoglobin and for that got a Nobel Prize, um, because it was very easy to purify that from blood and it was an unbelievably abundant um, entity. If you don't have something that is really abundant, You basically, at the end, if you go to the next slide, what you can do is you can use, of course, recombinant um, technology, and you incorporate, um, basically, the gene of the protein that you're interested in um, into either bacteria or in, you know, mammalian cells, but uh, for the most part, um, people have used bacteria for this, and you basically trick the bacteria to at the end grow your, um, uh, your protein. And the example I have here is, is from a class that I'm teaching where we, um, the students um, um, purify different variants of um, of green fluorescent proteins that have different colors that originally come from um, from a jellyfish. And if you want to just get one milligram out of um, jellyfish, you have to get 10,000 uh, jellyfish and grind them up and purify it from there. But if you act, incorporate the gene into, into the bacteria, you can basically at the end, um, trick the bacteria to make this protein, you couple this with some um, um, resistance marker for antibiotics and so the bacteria really want to keep this otherwise they will die if there's a growth media that has un, um, that has antibiotics in them. And so you basically can then spin down the, bact- um, the bacterial cultures and you separate the liquid media from the actual cell mass and you see this sort of like in the middle Um, On the bottom, um, the centrifugation tubes that have um, these colored uh, bacteria um, 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 on the bottom, it looks a little bit like finger paint and they can basically crack these open and you basically sort of like get um, the cytoplasm Out of them, um, these bacteria, and they of course contain um, um, the different coloured fluorescent proteins, and you see this on the lower right corner. If you go to the next um, slide, you can, you know, the purification basically involves sort of like chromatography steps where you can sort proteins based on, you know, expression tags. You know, there's like certain tags that allow. Um, proteins to interact with certain types of resins that um, have an affinity to it. And um, the example that I've shown here on the bottom is, is this is a large column here shown on this, this white column that is attached to this uh, pump system. You see sort of like this uh, fluorescent green things on the left light um, and going through the column. And this is a column that separates by, by size. If you turn on the UV light, you see sort of like really the fluorescence and you see sort of like where the protein is eluding. Of course, if you want to visualize proteins, you have to have another system for this, and this is on the right. This is um, an SDS um, page system. This is a gel that, basically, uh, on the top, um, you load a, a small amount of the protein in some in some loading dye, and then you. Um, 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 Put this um, gel system into an electric field, and based on the charge of the proteins, you basically get separation. And um, you can stain that with um, certain dyes. This is a Comassie dye here, and you see, sort of like, you know, on the right hand side, the very left lane is the marker lane, so different sized uh, proteins. And then you see sort of like this really this big band in the middle that goes um, through the middle of the gel that has the standard, This is basically the purified um, uh, green fluorescent proteins, and all of these other bands that you see sort of like in the gel, they are contaminants or they are degradation products of the of the protein. So if we go to the next um, slide. The way of how you would then typically crystallize this, and is at the end um, you cannot, um, like in the rock candy case, you cannot just at the end just you know, um, um, take the sugar solution and let the water evaporate over time and you boil it a little bit that so this goes faster. You cannot do this with proteins, of course, because they will, denature, nature, just like egg whites will do. And so the way of how this is done is um, um, one puts the protein um, in a sealed container. You can see this on the upper left-hand corner where the protein, which typically has a small amount of physiological concentrations of salt and some buffer um, to basically have a stable pH, you basically put that protein solution in a little droplet. And you dilute um, basically a reservoir solution that can contain different types of chemicals that have a certain pH that um, that uh, want to be hydrated, for example, high concentration of ammonium sulfate is um, what is used, or formate, or polyethylene glycols, which basically are molecules that, um, that are sulfated by the water. And so if you dilute the reservoir solution and have a drop that is uh, hanging on the top, Um, you see this here in the cyan color, then over time, water is evaporating out of the drop and is going into the reservoir because there's a chemical gradient that basically wants to um, equalize the concentration of the reservoir solution. And of course, if you have much less um, salt in in the protein solution, it's diluted. And so over time, the drop is gonna shrink over time. And so if you're lucky, in the reservoir solution, as all of the ingredients in there that the protein doesn't just uh, amorphously precipitate um, out of the drop, you end up with um, a crystal here on the right hand side. You see this here, this is a really nice crystal. This is like overall, the entire drop is two millimeters or so in, in diameter, so it's a really nice crystal. This is lysozyme, and uh, lysozyme crystallizes relatively easily, and this is also why this is um, the first enzyme structure at the end that was solved. So these crystals are uh, sort of like in the order of a couple of hundred microns. And so if you go to the next slide, um, how do you actually um, expose them to x-rays? These are really expensive uh, machines and facilities um, called synchrotrons. They're particle accelerators that um, um, basically take electrons injected into a very large ring. These rings have a circumference of sort of like, you know in the order of uh, one or two miles. And um, you can see this here in particular, the one in Grenoble which is incredible of how you see the <laughs> the mountains in the back. Um, and um, this is um, has a series of magnets that basically accelerates the electrons almost to the to the speed of light. And um, when they change direction, they will lose their energy, and you can generate very powerful X-rays with this. And if you go to the next slide, you can see this how powerful they are. If you don't collimate um, the um, um, the X-rays that come out, they are so strong in in intensity that they can basically excite um, the molecules in the air. We don't use a beam like this. This is at the very beginning of a of a beam line. We use a, a beam that is really um, Selected for a single wavelength that is at the end um, cut down to a beam um, that is sort of like in the order of a couple of microns, and you put your crystal into the beam. If you go to the next slide, this is how this at the end looks like. You know, how do you actually make um, uh, mount a small crystal like this in the beam? You use this um, pin that is shown on the uh, schematic of this is shown on the upper right hand corner. Where you have a magnetic base that is. Um, um, that is linked to, you know, some tube, and on top of that is a li- nylon loop. And you basically fish out with this loop the, the crystal. You put it sort of like in the inside, and then you freeze this very quickly in um, in a, a nitrogen solution. You have to make sure that there is some cryoprotectant in there that you don't generate ice, and so you prevent that from happening. And then you mount that into um, into an X-ray beam. Um, this is sort of like um on the lower left hand corner you see the magnetic base on the um on the left and you see sort of like this metal tube that comes down from the upper right hand corner towards the the beam. This is a cold stream that um, has a hundred kelvin of nitrogen gas that is basically keeping the sample frozen and then you basically have a tiny beam that basically will expose it there's a close up of how this actually looks in reality you see the pin on the lower right-hand corner um, that has the nylon loop attached, and then there's a crystal inside. And if you go to the next slide, you actually see this in a much better way. Um, This is a much cleaner camera shot of of another loop where you see sort of like the the crystal sitting there. If you put that into uh, an X-ray beam and you open the the shutter, what you get is, um, on the detector, which is on the right-hand side, you get all of these reflections, these black spots that are basically um, um, on the screen. And um, um, basically, um, the data collection is, is you take a series of these types of images where you rotate the crystal by an increment of um, of, uh, of a degree, typically you know, 0.1, 0.2 degrees. And you integrate over this rotation where you keep rotating the crystal into the beam. And you have a series of images that basically will show the change of the diffraction pattern. and. Um, from the intensity and the positioning, one can ultimately um, get a data set. And with a lot of calculations, you can basically, at the end, get an electron density. And this is on slide 13. This is an example from one of my former graduate students, Daniel Lin, who basically saw one of the nuclear porn structures of, um, of a protein called nuclear porn 53 or nop 53 that deflected to one angstrom resolution. And so I, I picked this example. Because it's really in, um, clear of what this is by itself a little puzzle, um, but you see all of these blue balls in the upper left corner. you see sort of like you know the individual um, positioning of um, um, of these individual atoms in blue. And this is the electron density that you get. This is the data you get out of the um, crystallography experiment. And if you take a look on the right-hand corner, you see um, these two densities. One has a five-fold ring, one has a six-fold ring. And so um, there, of course, proteins are made out of 20 amino acids that are linked um, to each other in a linear fashion to form a chain. And so um, a um, um, six-fold ring is a a tyrosine. You see sort of like on the bottom, there's this um, additional atom. but but the hydroxy group of the tyrosine is located. And on the upper-hand corner is basically histidine, which is a five-fold ring. And you can even see at this resolution that um, the carbon, which has um, less electrons shown in orange, and the nitrogen, which has more electrons in blue, that the density for the nitrogen is larger. And so when you interpret the entire electron density, this is what is shown on the lower left-hand corner. Um, you basically get sort of like this um, um, model for all of the atoms. I say all; it's not really all because hydrogens are uh, typically they are they are not electron dense enough that you can really see them. Not at the typical resolutions, and so crystallographers or structural biologists typically don't consider hydrogen atoms because we really cannot see them most of the time. But this is a really complicated um, um, structure here as so it is. This is only 130 amino acids. For this little domain, and so for the most part, these things are then simplified in the lower right-hand corner, where you just follow the main chain, basically the linkage of all of the amino acids, and you don't really show the side chains. And this is what is shown in blue. This is a ribbon representation, basically, of the architecture of this little RM-like uh, domain. It's like a little, um, it's a little type of fold um, that is um, uh, in the nuclear pore. So if we go to the next slide,
3: oh, quick question
2: yes
3: so one angstrom resolution that that's uh that's a, a you know a very high confident uh, result isn't it, or is that yes. more commonplace um i you know i would really was active in in the nineties and hey, boy that's gold if you can get to one angstrom is that more uh, a contemporary result or
1: now, it's really it went, an yeah.
3: exceptional structure. Yeah.
2: So, this is an exceptional structure. So we solved a lot of structures in the lab. This is sort of like, you know, our hallmark of really high resolution. This was 0.9 angstroms, and this was super high resolution. And of course, that's a really fun thing because um, you can see of how you basically can fit the amino acids in, you know, where every single atom is just basically. For the most part, the, um, the resolution, of course, is directly coupled to the quality of the crystals and how well something is ordered. And um, in a nutshell, what is really important, sort of like, you know, something I didn't say about crystallography is, is that in the end, you cannot see individual atoms. So you need to have the crystal um, and you use it as an amplifier to basically uh, average over all of the molecules in the crystals. There are thousands and thousands of um, the same uh, molecules in there. And so if they don't move very much, you basically at the end, you get the snapshots where the atoms are. But for the most part, um, crystals are not that great. They're not that well ordered. And so the resolution that you get out is not that great. But there was also um, a big change in in technology. So I alluded to this sort of like in the beginning that um, basically, the automation of data collection and um, and the quality of the kind of data you got out completely changed um, with the onset of having direct detectors. And so, in a nutshell, you know all of these spots. What I've shown you sort of like the image with the diffraction spots. Um, in the past, in you know in the times of Max Perutz and um, and John Kendrew, and this of course before computers really, where um, um, we're helping in this. There were um, basically administrative assistants who basically took an X-ray film and they had a light screen and they would compare the intensity of the of the spot, how black or how dark is the spot, um, with some with some comparison. And of course, the data that you get out um, from that is not as accurate as if you have um, um, a better way of um, of measuring this. And so, in an advance, then was you know you could use CCD um, type of detectors, which is basically. Um, um some way of getting a digital image, but then at the end, there were direct detectors were developed, which allowed basically um for measuring i mean it's basically their photon counters where you basically get much more accurate data, and that was also a game changer for crystallography, but it doesn't allow you to get you know from crystals that used to deflect in the nineties to three angstroms to get one angstrom data. This is not this case i mean this is a really rare case where um actually the crystals were absolutely spectacularly good and they actually gave you this result and so for the most part we are we have electron densities that are not so nice and they are actually not so easy to build into as these ones here but this is at the end this is basically um it's a puzzle okay does this answer your question
3: yes no wonderful wonderful yeah
2: yeah all right so then let's move forward um um to slide 15. this is um the story of the nuclear power complex, which is really a very long story um, um, to begin with. So you have to um, uh, basically, you know, catapult yourself back to almost a hundred years ago. Where basically light microscopy um, 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 was there, and then people developed the electron microscope. And there was a lot of effort to basically try to visualize biological samples, which was not so simple because part of an um, electron microscope is that you have a really high vacuum. And so if you put some cell in there, they basically they will, they will evaporate and you don't see anything. And so once these methods were basically developed, people put all sorts of things into the microscope. And so this was a golden time in basically seeing the things you could not see. If you think about sort of like all of the structures you know in the cell, the, the yeah the nucleus, the endoplasmic reticulum, the the ribosomes, basically the places where the electron microscopes, they discovered in a very short um, um, amount of time, all of the organelles that basically are Uh, you know, that are composed in our cells and plant cells and other eukaryotic cells. And um, that basically was the birth in many ways of um, of modern cell biology, because it's like if I go then back, you know, at the end, um, discovered a lot of the, um, the organelles in the cell. Then you know the next generation from this was um, you know for example Günter Blobel then came in and basically tried to get a molecular description of how these organelles basically worked and how they facilitated certain processes, and so basically um, in the very beginning of all of the these um, advances when biological matter could be analyzed, people put in in the microscope um, um, things that you could easily dissect, and so. One of the things in the workhouse for many for many, many years in the field was, you know, from these, you know, Xenopus from these African claw frogs, these um these large cells where basically each one of those um 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 containers, you know, if you look on the right, this is like from this entire thing that has a that black dot in the middle, is basically is as hell. It's a really large cell and you can basically get the nucleus and you can see it with your eyes and you can also manipulate it with tweezers and you can put it onto, you know, a grid, like a tiny little copper grid that you can basically analyze this in an electron microscope. And the image is basically the one on the upper left hand corner. The surprise from there was that the membrane from, from nuclei, especially here from this fog, was basically at the end not smooth like the plasma membrane, but it contained these dimples and these holes, which were called nuclear pores. And then over the years, then, you know, Michael Watson, this is a person of, at, at Rockefeller, basically discovered that these pores contained proteinaceous mass, which he then termed the nuclear pore complex. And so there's a difference between a nuclear pore and a nuclear pore complex. The nuclear pore is basically encapsulating the entire structure, but the proteinaceous mass is really called a nuclear pore complex. And so if you go to the next slide, I just give you one thing here that is an important advance that um, um, for sort of like the things that I uh, talk about um, um, in the paper. This is a beautiful slide from Martin Goldberg, who basically generated a large number of really spectacular photos of the of the pore you can basically see um, this is also from FROG-O sites you can basically see the inside and the outside of the pores on the upper left hand corner. this is basically the nuclear envelope that is flat on top of each other where you see the cytoplasmic side and the nucleoplasmic side in one image. on the very right hand side you see that um, each pore this is one pore and you see an eightfold somatic object contains these filaments that on the far end are bundled. And this is what's called a nuclear basket structure. And this is very different from how the pores look like from the cytoplasmic side, where you see sort of like these rings on the surface, but you don't really see these um, um, very organized filamentous structures. And so if you go back, uh, you go one step forward, um, what does this pore at the end really do? Um, it's um, in a nutshell, it's a, it's a really important machinery that um, um, allows proteins to basically shuttle in between the cytoplasm and the nucleus. So why is that important? Well, the nucleus, um, the big sort of like, you know, advance in, 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 in evolution going from a prokaryotic cell to eukaryotic, eukaryotic cell is that the cell allowed for the internal compartmentalization using membranes inside of the cell which basically allowed for a dedicated compartment that contains all the DNA and shielded from the chemistries that happen in the cytoplasm. But it also allowed for the generation of other types of um, membrane-enclosed organelles that have dedicated functions. And so the nucleus, of course, in many ways is um, like a library, because it contains all of the genetic information. And and whenever the cell is reacting to its environment, that requires, at the end, the the generation of, um, of new proteins a factor has to go into the nucleus, has to be granted access. There's a copy of the DNA that is made, the messenger RNA, the RNA is spliced and processed. And ultimately, when everything is done right, um, it is granted access into the cytoplasm, where that transcript or this copy of the DNA is then transcribed into a protein. And so whenever the, you know we think about the flow of genetic information, the central dogma of life, which is basically the DNA makes the RNA, and the RNA makes basically the protein. Well, in eukaryotes, in the middle is this um, is this little structure that's called the nuclear pore complex, which is fundamentally a bouncer in this entire process that basically decides whether a macromolecule is able to enter or exit the nucleus, and this is done with the large machinery of transport factors, uh, what is shown in slide number 17, is basically these transport factors called carreferens um which is basically a greek um um for you know it's like ferry um something across the nuclear envelope and so there's an, a family of transport factors on the upper left-hand corner you see this in sort of like these um violet and, and purple tones that basically take a macromolecule a protein that basically can bind to them and and ferry them across onto the nuclear side. And analogously, there's an um, export um, uh, caryferins that binds to proteins in the nucleus and fade them across to the, to the cytoplasmic site. And there's a small GDPase called RAN that is um, basically um, uh, giving the directionality for this process because it is only maintained in a particular triphosphate um, state inside of the nucleus. And so it basically facilitates the assembly of export complexes and the disassembly of import complexes in the nuclear compartment. And so it's an incredibly important machinery because of the regulation function that it has in all eukaryotic cells. About a third or so of the proteins that are encoded in our genome uh, at one point or another have to enter the nucleus. And this is, at the end, a regulated process. And so if you go to the next slide, there's also at the end of course um, um, one of the questions at the end then is immediately is like well obviously the nuclear power complex has to have some way of restricting proteins from just uh, freely diffusing in and out of the nucleus. Some of them can if they are small enough but if they um, sort of like reach sort of like you know the, the size of a small global domain, they are not able to do that anymore. And so um, the person who figured out fundamentally of how that works, um, is the Görlich Max Planck director um, uh, in Götting, who basically um, um, came up with this idea actually much earlier than um, some of the other people that um, that are typically cited for this liquid-liquid phase separation behavior. He basically generated these um, unstructured elements that are found in many of the proteins that make up this nuclear pore complex and figured out that at the end, this protein is able to generate a gelatinous structure. And you see this in, in slide 18. There's like this little blob. It look, looks a little bit like jello. This is basically um, 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 a hydrated structure that is held together by phenylalanine glycine repeats that are found in these unstructured elements. There are many of those. There's basically islands of, you know, an FX, FG motif every so 15 or 20 residues or so and basically transport factors can partition into this liquid liquid phase separation compartment by binding to this FXFG repeats with uh, little holes that they have on the on the surface and so the the pores basically the primary function of the pores really to form a diffusion barrier that basically puts this kind of like jello thing in the middle of the of the pore um, or some liquid um, you know, version of that. Um, it doesn't have to be necessarily um, a completely solidified hydrogen. Um, and um, transport factors can overcome that barrier by basically being able to bind to it and being ferried across. And so um, if we go to the next slide. This machinery works unbelievably well. And so here are fluorescent proteins. Um, and a single cell is shown where, in the same cell, um, it has been transfected with, um, with um, a construct that expresses a gene um, um, that is a green fluorescent protein uh, fused to a nuclear localization sequence, which is called NLS for short, which is basically um, um, a lysine-arginine, which a positively charged um, sequence. And at the same time, there's a red fluorescent protein called m that is fused to a nuclear export sequence. Um, And when you have this in the cell, you get a complete um, segregation of the two colors uh, inside of the cell. The green protein is entirely in the the nucleus, and the red color is completely um, in the cytoplasm. This is because the nuclear pore complex and the transport machinery is, at the end, um, basically sorting these molecules inside of the cell basically immediately. So if you go to the next slide, to give you a sense of the scale and uh, what we had discussed um, earlier about sort of like you know um, how you know big the the nuclear pore complex is and how easy this is as a structural target, this is um, a slide that I made um, many years ago when an undergrad asked me, it's like how big is this thing really?" And so I put sort of like slides on there on the very left-hand corner the potassium channel. That is allowing uh, um, um, a single um, a membrane layer and sort of like all of these structures are drawn to scale. and most of them you probably know have, have heard of um, there on the the green green sort of like in the middle of the slide is the fully assembled bacterial uh, ribosome the 70s ribosome and i have to see because at the time when i made the slide there was no mammalian counterpart of the large ribosomal subunit Um, 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 a structure available, but um, the ribosome assembly in eukaryotic cells happens inside of the nucleus, and so the nuclear pore complex has to be able to export the fully assembled large ribosomal subunit um, um, after it's assembled in the nucleus and goes through. And so the nuclear pore complex, which is shown at a very low resolution on the very right-hand side, has to be able to conduct uh, um, uh, ribosomal particles. And on the very left-hand side, there's a potassium channel that conducts basically the transport of individual potassium ions. And so there's a a size difference um, um, of these two different structures of about 2,000 in there. So each pore has um, has a mass of 120 million Dalton. And um, as I already told you, um, structural biologists um, don't really count hydrogen atoms. Because we really cannot see them, so uh, um, 120 million Dalton, um, If the if the entire structure is made out of protein, translates to 60 million atoms, but the hydrogens are not counted, so it's 10 million atoms, and they're encoded in a thousand individual protein chains. So you have a thousand parts in here, and there's about 35 different uh, nuclear points. And so if you do the math, and you had um, you have a thousand protein chains, and you have about 30. Four or 35 different proteins, you basically at the end come out with a, a multiple of around 32. And that is at the end not surprising because the entire structure um, has eightfold axis um, of symmetry along the nucleosotoplasmic axis. And there's, if you look at the, at the, the red um, image on the right, you can also see this pseudo twofold axis of symmetry um, in the nuclear envelope. And so I picked this structure. Um, of the nuclear pore complex on the right, deliberately because this was the structure that was published by Martin back in 2006 um, as the first um, cryo-electron tomography um, reconstruction of the dysteleum pore. This was the resolution we had, the highest resolution that was available of the of the nuclear pore complex. Shortly after we started, and you can sort of like extrapolate from there where we basically have gone. So if you go to the next slide. Um, this is basically the inventory, the parts of the, of the pore, and this is something that is um, really stunning. Nature developed this machine a billion years ago at the junction when cells subcompartmentalized and became eukaryotic cell, which I think is still one of the most amazing um, events in evolution and basically then, after it invented the pore, got stuck with it, and you can see that because all of the proteins, the inventory of all of the proteins, if you look at the different uh, proteins, it's like from yeast, um, the human proteins, and um, in CT, what is um, shown here is a, is a thermophilic fungus that we are using a lot in our lab, ketomium thermophilum, you can see that all of the proteins have a homolog in all of the different organisms. and. Um, of course, you know if you look carefully, you see that um, the human pore has a couple of extra bells and whistles. You know there are some proteins that don't have counterparts, but also analogously in yeast, there's a couple of proteins that have only one homolog in the in in, in human cells. And so fundamentally, the nuclear pore complex is a relic of um, of evolution, and it's an interesting one because of course nature had a billion years. Um, time to basically change the sequences of all of these different proteins, and it actually did that. And so, in most parts, it's really difficult actually to identify the direct homologs just by looking at the sequences, because in the end, um, the um, um, the proteins are not so similar. And that's actually also a problem um, in, in many ways um, if one wants to solve now solve a, 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 a predict the structures using alpha fold. That is able to predict structures in many cases for the for the nuclear porns from some of the plants, for example. It's really difficult to get reliable predictions because the sequence space is just not covered, and um, um, basically nature has changed these proteins quite quite a bit on the sequence level. They are really not that similar, so. What is important to sort of like note here is is that um, each pore is made out of 34 35 different proteins they are divided into two classes um, one class is somatic components so these are proteins that occur on both sides of the nuclear envelope and you see this here for example if you look at the schematic on the left they get the yellow proteins on the outside as well as the orange ones and you see sort of like this donut shaped thing that sits in the in the uh, in the middle of the pore, these are things that are basically on both sides of the of the nuclear envelope. This is a pseudo uh, two-fold symmetric structure, and then the faces, either the top face here shown in cyan or in these um, purple and lavender color on the on the bottom, you basically have another. Fourteen or so different proteins that specifically decorate the exposed um, surfaces with different proteins. And of course, this is a little bit a movable target because a lot of proteins dynamically interact with the pores, so the number of sort of like dynamically interacting proteins is a very large one, but this is sort of like the considered set that basically forms the static nuclear pore complex. And so if you go to the next slide, there's the answer for... How you can generate with a relatively small set of 35 different proteins, even if you use them multiple times, how you can come up with some unbelievable large size of 120 million Dalton. And so this is the human set. And so structural biologists, at the end, draw protein structures or protein sequences based on folds. And so if you go to the very top, there's a protein that's called nucle- uh, nuclear porn nup 160. Or nup160. This is uh, called nup160 because the molecular weight of that uh, protein is 160 kilodalton. And so, if you look at the black line that goes from the top to the bottom, this is 2,000 amino acid residues. And so, these proteins are really big. They contain multiple domains, and um, a lot of the proteins contain also these phenylalanine glycine repeats. But you can see, sort of like the uh, the reason you can build such a large structure out of the small set is fundamentally because the the proteins are at the end really, really big. And so if you go to the next slide, this is basically what we proposed. It's hard to believe, but it's really 20 years ago, that at the end, you can solve the entire nuclear pore complex structure by piecing it together in a three-dimensional, six jigsaw puzzle-like fashion, where you basically determine the structures of every single domain, all of the interactions, you build up larger complexes. And if crystallography did not um, 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 did not allow you to get crystals and solve a structure, we can use, at that time, negative stain electron microscopy. Of course, this is now replaced with actually doing high-resolution electron microscopy. But the goal was to get um, structures of the entire subcomplex. i give you one example later. It's like it's a mega Dalton in size, and the hope was that ultimately, if you have all of these structures, you can puzzle it into a low resolution or moderate resolution structure of the entire pore by identifying these shapes. And so that was quite a stretch at the time, because if you look at um, the red uh, pore structure that I've shown you in in the beginning, there was really nothing that you could see. And so ultimately, this was at the end something that required quite an advance on the electron microscopy side, but at the end, Um, the backup plan, this is number five here, was always to have basically a bottom-up reconstitution of the pores. So that basically means you make all of the proteins, you mix them together, you figure out of how they fit together, what are the key interactions, and you use this to basically determine key interaction structures, but also you can also use this type of information to help in assembling a whole structure. And that, number six, is sort of like the thing when People sort of like start rolling their eyes when you said, "Well, I don't just want to get one structure, which will take a long time. I want to get a movie with many different snapshots that basically will tell me how that thing actually does its job, because um, it's a little bit like you know, if you don't if you don't see it, it, it's really it's difficult to infer how the thing ultimately is going to work. And so that is that was um, sort of like the goal from the from the get go." Of course, this was a very lofty, lofty goal. And then the last one, number seven, is a really important one, which is at the end, of course, for such a complicated machine with so many different proteins, so many different residues. Ultimately, how that thing works is the chemistry of how all of these different proteins interact with each other and um, do its job. And basically the structures are really important to guide experiments because you can break things um, based on what you know interacts with each other um, in crystal structures or in EM structures and basically ask the question in cells, how does this basically break something? But this becomes incredibly important is um, for very complicated diseases that are associated with the nuclear power complex. There's, uh, for example, um, sporadic cases of ALS which basically is nobody in your family ever had this, and you are basically all of a sudden you get ALS. Um, people have sequenced those individuals, and of course, you don't know individual mutations because nobody in the family has um, this disease. But if you, what you can do is you can compare these genomes of these individuals, and there's something like five or six thousand of those now, but you basically then ask, what are the rarest changes in the genome? that you can find. And what people have found is, is that um, the top 40 hits are basically nuclear points um, that basically form the pore. And that's at the end of the interesting hypothesis that comes out of that, where basically the pore has to last a lifetime in neurons. And ultimately, you are born with, um, with a structure that has weaknesses in certain parts, and it will just not last. And basically, when you turn 20, you know neurons start to fail, and you start developing LLS. It is for me the first time that I actually really understand why, at the end, um, there's this delayed onset um, of the disease, because these pores really have to last a lifetime in our neurons for the most part. And so if you go to the next slide, this is a summary of basically all of the structures that we basically determined over the years. And um, we built up individual complexes from individual structures. And um, there's almost 100 different structures that we basically um, got. And we basically piece from those the entire pore complex structure together. So if you go to the next slide, another important thing for this was um, from the get-go, of course, to figure out um, whether we can reconstitute key subcomplexes. And that, of course, is a complicated thing. Biochemists will look at this and will say, well, you know, these proteins, you know, 2,000 residues is not really something that's easy to make. And yes, it isn't, especially not um, if you make the human proteins. And so we search for a long time to basically find an organism that, at the end, would allow us to make all of the proteins in quantities, milligram, highly pure quantities, that so we can do very careful biochemistry with this. And this um, organism is ketomium thermophilum* which basically allowed us to systematically try things out, and and that has actually opened the door to do that, and at the end we confirm the findings using the human counterparts, which are much more difficult to, to get, but ultimately can confirm the analysis. I say this is relatively easy, but if you go to the next slide, you can see how easy it is. You know, for anybody who has worked in a lab, you know, making twelve thousand liters of E. coli for one experiment, this is not something that um, um, that is easy. Not a single person at the end can do. And so, this was a team of people that over many years basically pieced together how these proteins at the end fit together. And so, this is one example of the assay that we use over and over. Which is the gold standard for protein protein or protein complex interactions. And so I want to explain how this um, fundamentally works. You are making these bacteria that make your proteins. You figure out um, how you can trick them to make your particular protein. You mix the proteins together, you form subcomplexes. Sometimes you have to um, express, um, um, make bacteria that don't just make one protein, that make more than one protein. But then at the end, you take this out, you purify them. These things are really um, um, very labile. So this is not something that uh, you have to basically, when you start, you have to work as um, as fast as possible. And you have to don't take breaks. And you know can be sort of like 36 hours nonstop trying to um, purify this. But at the end, you come up with um, a complex. For example, the one in the gel on the top, which is called CNC hexamer. This is one particular complex of the pore, the cold nuclear pore complex, or also called the Y complex. And so you see that this is a complex that is made out of all of these proteins that are labeled on the right side, no 120 no 85 no NOP145C, this is seven proteins. And so if you inject this onto um, a chromatography column that sorts proteins by size, you will get at the end, if the protein is, the complex is really nice, you will get a really nice peak and you see sort of like this blue curve in the upper left hand corner. And... um, What you do is you basically shine a laser onto this when every microliter comes out from the column. And you can do scattering experiments with this that allow you to um, measure the molecular mass of the complex. And so if you get a horizontal line, that means that there are many measurements that basically come out exactly with the same number. And that is what's called monodisperse. It's a single species. That's a really nice thing. And so if you do this with the blue complex, you see the, get a nice peak that has 482 kilodalton. You take the red um, uh, complex, which is six proteins, you get 335 kilodalton. You know how big the individual proteins are. You can figure out that each of the proteins occurs exactly one time. If you then mix these two proteins, this is what a green um, um, curve is, a green profile. You basically, at the end, now when these two things interact, because there's a peak that comes out that is much earlier. And it's not just the sum of the two different peaks, but it's something that eludes earlier, and you see that the mass goes up to 654 kilodalton, which is not exactly the sum of both of them. But these complexes are very precious to make and they have affinities with each other that are basically at the end um, determine whether the two proteins will stick to each other. Some proteins. Um, bind to each other like superglue, they'd never come off. Some of them do this much weaker, and so you sometimes saturate the full complex formation, sometimes you don't, and ultimately it's something that is like a technical limit, but you know for a fact that at the end you have a monodispersed complex, and you see that the gel on the bottom, the green one, um, that says pre-incubation, is basically has all of the bands in there. These are all individually purified proteins mixed together in subcomplexes and then interact with each other. So now, what you can do is you can change individual proteins and it can repeat this many, many, many times. And if you go to the next slide, you basically come out with what the blueprint is of the entire nuclear pore complex. And so it is built in a very cool way. There's one complex out of eight proteins called the code nuclear pore complex or Y-shaped complex. It's the one that is shown in yellow on the right hand side um, that has the label C and C on it. This is a complex that is made out of really big structural domains that bind to each other with superglue, really, really, really tight. And because this is so tight, you can isolate this complex from every organism where this was tried. Classic approach would be you take an antibody that you raise against uh, one of the proteins and um, you crack open cells. And then you do pull-downs with the antibodies or co-IPs where you basically do immunoprecipitations with the antibody, and because you have an antibody that binds to a single protein, the entire complex is going to um, um, stay with it. And so you identify all of the other proteins. And this is really tight held together. The rest of the pore from the somatic core is not built this way. It has all of these large structured domains. You see this orange one, the dark blue one, the light blue one, then this red, four-shaped one, and this green one they don't really bind to each other. What they do is they interact with each other using these unstructured proteins. They're a little bit like you have very large um, strings that basically tie them together. And this turns out to be a really important design feature that allows the pore to undergo massive changes of the diameter of the central transport channel, as you will see um, a little bit later. So if you go to the next slide, this is a lot of work over 10 years or so. That basically elucidated all of the different structures that form the somatic core. Um, You see the entire Y shaped structure. Um, You see sort of like this four shaped structure in red. Um, This is a four protein complex. You see this green one that has a larger head on top and a skinnier end on the bottom. And then you see these two blue shaped proteins that look like question mark shapes. There's like one that is uh, missing a piece in the middle that we didn't have that at the time. And then there's this um, orange protein called NUP170 that is um, one state here that is really flexible that basically adopt um, many, many shapes. And so how do we then put this together um, into, into the somatic core? If you go to the next slide, um, um, you need to have, of course, a frame. And so this is on slide 29. You see sort of like what has happened in parallel uh, while we were solving the structures, Martin Beck who used to be a graduate student um, with um, um, Baumeister and Oort Medalia, who solved um, um, here in 2004, this um, dictyostelium structure that i shown you. This is the sweat pore in the very beginning, And Lord Medallia then improved this, and you see sort of like the time difference in 2012. Published a structure of um, of the um, uh, human nuclear power complex at 66 or so angstroms. You see sort of like this there's three ring structures on the top, there's a ring, on the bottom, there's a ring. This is a cut through through the pore. And Martin basically having spent almost a decade trying to optimize the sample. Basically got the structure of the porn in the lower hand corner lower left hand corner, there was thirty two angstroms, and this was still with the c c d detector, like a digital camera type of detector and then a year later in two thousand fifteen, this same sample gave a resolution of twenty two angstroms. Um, because there was a switch from a, from a CCD detector to a diode detector and electron microscopy, which is basically the underlying advance that um, um, uh, caused this revolution in in the larger and larger, higher and higher resolution of EM structures. And so the structure on the lower right-hand corner from 2015 for Martin Beck's lab is what we used as a frame. And if we go to the next slide, you see sort of like of how this works. And I wanted to s- describe this. Um, um um uh, in in sort of like more simple terms we all know this game of the toddlers where you have a triangle a circle and a square and you're basically trying to put this um shape into um into a socket and so every single time um you do that you can basically identify where basically this triangle is uh, is located and so of course we cannot do this with uh, structures and we do this in the computer and so the way of how um this is done is we basically generate systematic um, orientations of this y-shaped structure. Oops, there's like a really loud noise. Some, oh, oh, sorry. OK. So the way of how this is done in the computers, you generate uh, systematic arrangements of the structure. For example, this y-shaped structure on the upper left-hand corner, you see this. And um, um, you basically, have all of these different orientations, and they ask how this fits at every single point of the M map. It's a little bit like you know you would be blind, and you just take the triangle, and you're trying to hit this on the table until you hit the socket. And when you do that, you can score the, um, the fit, um, um, how well this basically fits the shape. And what you get is on the upper right-hand corner, you see this sort of like for the CNC hexamer, you see sort of like a large number. Of incorrect solutions. And um, this is a plot of the correlation versus the number of hits. And then you see on the right hand side from this a better correlation. And there are these four uh, placements that are labeled one, two, three, four. These are real, these are real placements. And um, therefore, are four because we are doing the search with one eighth of the pore, because it's eightfold symmetric. And so by doing this approach we figure out where the complex is placed and also how many copies you have. And of course, you can then subtract this, um, what you have accounted for from the search model, very similar when you have the triangle and it goes into the socket. Of course, you don't need to try the triangle anymore. And so you basically do subsequent searches in maps that have been, that um, that, uh, what you have accounted for has been eliminated and you can do this in different orders. And ultimately, you come out with the placement and with the stoichiometry of each of the proteins. So in the end, it's not really that important that you know exactly how many copies of each proteins um, are in the pore, because this approach will tell you ultimately how many copies you have. When you go to the next slide, this is what we have published in 2016, which was basically elucidating the um, somatic core architecture of the human pore. What was stunning about this advance is not only that we actually got this, which was really nice, But what was stunning is that we basically interpreted the human map, the human um, cryo-electron microscopy map that we used as a frame using structures that were primarily obtained from fungal species, either from ketomium or from baker's yeast. We had only a very small number of human structures, but you can see already um, how nature got stuck with, um, with the same architecture because the same shapes of the proteins we could identify in the map. And so if you go to the next slide, you can basically see how the structure is built. And so in the upper left-hand corner, you see sort of like the view from the top. You see the Ys, the the yellow Y structures, um, that is followed then by this ring of this orange protein that is directly at the membrane. The membrane is shown in in gray. This orange layer is then followed by by this, uh, this green layer. Followed by this blue layer of the question mark shape protein, followed by this red layer of this protein complex that contains these unstructured FG repeats. And so this was really nice to see this um, sort of like concentric cylinder like structure, because this is what we had proposed after one of the reviewers at the end asked us when we solved the first nuclear porn pair, how does the entire thing look like? I mean, this was a in many ways, an outrageous question. This is like you're basically taking a photo of a little part of your pinky, and at the end, you ask the question, how does the rest of the body look like? And so we basically, at the end, we came up with some idea that um, the nuclear pore complex is, at the end, is a layer-like structure because of the presence of these phenylalanine glycine repeats, which somehow had to block the central transport channel, which is the hole in the middle. And then at the end, you have these proteins, we anchored um, the Y complex on the outside. Ultimately, the the lower solution um, proposal at the end is how the thing at the end turned out to be, which is at the end something that was kind of um, a stunning thing. What we did not know at the time was how this um, inner ring this is this um, um, structure in the middle of the pore that is starting from this orange layer all the way to the red layer, how this is able to dilate ultimately to let um, very large things through? And um, we did not know how the, um, these, um, these, these little straps that hold the proteins together, how they would do that, but fundamentally we said they have to somehow do this in order to allow this to happen. And so if we go to the next slide, this is a really important slide for me. This is where we stopped. So we basically we did the systematic docking of all of the structures that we had. And we basically said, well, if we get a st- statistically significant docking, we know where the proteins are. But we had also other proteins. Some of the asymmetric ones are very available. But if you look at these um, leftover densities that are shown in cyan and they're shown in purple on the bottom, these densities are huge in comparison to these um, structures. And so you could, of course, not get any meaningful placements for those. And so we did not, at the end, at the end, do this. And so the paper is really fundamentally about how the, um, um, first of all, how the linkers basically hold the pore together, but then also how the cytoplasmic filament components are docked into this um, cyan leftover density. And so the first very quick story I want to share is like how we figured out of how the linkers work, and so this is work by a really terrific um, graduate student um, um, in the lab who, in the meantime, of course, graduated, Stefan Petrovic, who basically, if you go to slide 35, determined a bunch of really important structures of basically all of the linker interactions. These are these little straps that hold these folded domains together. And um, he had these three structures. So you look at this dark blue question mark shaped molecule, this um, light blue one, and you see sort of like on the surface these little green things, these little cyan things, and the purple things that are basically onto the surface, These are little pieces of these linkers that hold these proteins together. We figured out where these proteins um, had to be placed using a much higher resolution um, EM map that Martin Beck had um, determined. There was 12 angstroms now, so they collected a lot of data, and they made the resolution um, of the pore much, much higher. And that allowed for the unambiguous placements of these components, where we now also had the linker attachment sites. There's something that, at the end, I should mention here is is that um, in the interest of basically um, making the most significant advance, we coordinated with Martin Beck, who published his paper um, back to back with ours on the human poor um, um, structure um, because we we had basically exchanged the data a year and a half before we submitted the papers and the idea that we had the best um, em map to basically interpret the map and for him to basically have all of the structures to basically interpret um, his map. And then we publish the results independently in back-to-back um, 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 papers. And so if you go to the next slide, having now the placements of all of the different proteins, we can then determine how the different peptide straps that hold these structured domains together, how they basically affect the poor architecture. And so of course, the placement of these proteins is at the end allows us to connect the linkers, and so in the outer rings, these peptide straps, these little things that hold the structured domains together, basically link adjacent segments. So if you divide up the pore into eight segments of um, of something that is symmetric, just like an orange peel, and you have the individual wedges, then you have linker interactions that basically hold the adjacent uh, complexes together. You see this on the. In the schematic on the the lower right side, on what happens on the nuclear side, you see this um, um, blue-shaped question mark-shaped structure in the middle, and then you see this orange, uh, sorry, this um, green string that basically connects it to this um, green protein that sits here. And so you basically hold together two adjacent uh, tandem arrays of these Y-complexes. On the cytoplasmic side, you have an additional copy, but um, the copy that is on the nucleoside also exists on the cytoplasmic side. But there's an additional one, and um, it basically holds the inner, the the outer rings, these these uh, yellow rings, together on both the nucleoside side and the cytoplasmic side. Because you have this additional copy on the cytoplasmic side, the symmetric core is actually not entirely symmetric, because you have at the end an additional copy of these symmetric proteins, but this is just an aside, and so. This is what happens in the outer rings. in the inner ring, this is what is in the that contains the central transport channel. We can basically thread these linkers all the way from the membrane from this orange layer in the upper right hand corner. and then if you go one step down to the green layer, if you go one step down to this um, question mark shaped layer where you have two different versions of uh, two different proteins that basically sit there and then if you go further down to this four-shaped structure that contains CFG repeats, We can thread all of the linkers together. If you go to the next slide, this is a much more impressive representation of this. If you spread everything out, you can see how many linker connections there are to hold these proteins in place. But the most important take-home message is that all of these link interactions happen within one wedge. So nature, in the inner ring, prioritized basically holding together one wedge of the pore. And on the outside, it basically prioritized to really cross-link them the components together to form a really sturdy ring. And that, of course, is really important, because if you want to, at the end, dilate um, the inner ring, this is the kind of architecture that you want. And so the cool thing uh, from this paper is really it's a movie that came out. Out of this is like an upper left-hand corner. You basically see the 12 angstrom human healer cell uh, pore structure that was completely interpreted by the new structural information but this structure allowed for the interpretation of a much lower solution structure on the upper right hand corner which is only 35 angstroms you basically only see blobs but the blobs you can interpret if you have the, the 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 placement of the of the molecules and if you take a good look you see that the hole in the center is changing in size by 200 angstroms that's a huge amount of of size. And so you go from 450 angstroms, that's a diameter, to 450 angstroms. And the way of how this happens, you can see this here clearly on the bottom, is at the end that there's gaps between the individual units in the inner ring. It's basically like the orange wedges. They're basically separating to generate um, um, a gate in the middle. And so that's kind of a cool thing, because this is the way of how the inner ring is able to open like an iris of a camera to basically um, change dynamically the diameter of the central transport So if you go to the next slide, this is not a fluke that happens only in the human pore. This is the structure of the yeast pore, and I show you this only for completion. This is the open state. Um, also, this is a, a cryo-electro-microscopy uh, reconstruction for Martin Beck that we interpreted with our structures. And you can see also here that there are gaps in the inner ring. You see this uh, in the best on the bottom uh, image where you see this um, this glomerine, you see, sort of like there's a there's a gap on the left and the right of the central particle. If you go to the next uh, slide, um, the linker network is also evolutionarily conserved. So yeast and human, uh, even though that the yeast pore has a has a easier architecture or a simpler architecture on the outer rings, a little bit has an intact um, a, an architecture for the inner ring that is basically exactly the same. And so if you go to the next slide, this is basically how we basically then solved the problem also on the cytoplasmic side, which was basically just to extend the entire um, approach. And so if you go to the next slide from here, you look at the density that is left over from this much higher resolution map. The blobs that I've shown you um, you know, um, a little while ago from the previous map had like all of these different blobs that were very difficult to interpret. The density that is left over after the docking now is very, very crisp. You can basically identify two types of clusters. There's a red cluster and there's a purple cluster that basically is on the cytoplasmic side on the top. That's the side that is faced away from the nucleus. And on the bottom, there's really little density that is left over on the nuclear side that is basically facing to the inside of the nucleus. If we go to the next slide, number 44, This is just um, a domain architecture of all of the proteins that dock onto the cytoplasmic site in the thermophilic fungus. And so we did the same thing that we did for the elucidation of the interaction network of the other proteins in the somatic core. We developed expression systems in, the, in bacteria, purified all of the proteins. And if you go to the next slide, 45, we basically did the same type of experiment that I've shown you, just that in this case, this is 16 proteins put together in a single particle that is over a Dalton in size. And you see also how accurate these measurements are. So the, the, the orange, the, the green P, which is basically mixing three different components together has a measured mass of 1,000, oops, 1,163 kilodalton. And the theoretical mass of this um, complex is 1,109. So it's very close. It's almost a um, perfectly monodisperse complex. If you go to the next slide, this is the architecture that comes out of how the cytoplasmic filaments are anchored onto the cytoplasmic face. And this is something that's interesting, because this is, in the end, something that is a little bit different in the thermophilic fungus. You have this um, anchoring of this entire cytoplasmic filament complex, which is this complex that you see on the right side and on the left side of the central Y structure. These complexes are anchored by these elements that come out of these two red proteins, one on the top and one on the bottom, that anchor this four shaped central hub um, um, onto this Y. In the human, Um, In the human Y structure, these elements are not there, and so there was a riddle in the beginning, it's like how this, um, at the end, would be be anchored. We confirm first that um, the human proteins basically behave the same way, and so this is basically the same type of data, and you show in the lower left-hand corner, you see the reconstitution of this entire um, cytoplasmic filament complex. This is really 1,500 liters of proteins for one experiment. To basically at the end make this happen. The human pore or pores of multicellular eukaryotes have an additional protein. This is the protein here shown in red that has this number 358 on it, on the lower right-hand corner, that is not found in ketomium. And so we did experiments um, with um, this particular protein. And so that's a really, really, really big protein. It's 358 kilodalton. It has 3,224 residues. There are many, many domains. And you see this on slide 48 on the top. There's an n terminal region. All of these red domains um, is basically one structured domain. And when you analyze this, you get um, 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 a species in solution that is somewhere between a tetramer and a pentamer. It's oligomerizing. It's much larger than it should be. If you go to the next slide, we solve the structure. we did this with um, with a trick um, that um, 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 was basically a collaboration with Tony Kosiako's lab, who generated these monoclonal antibodies, synthetic antibodies that bind to the to the structure, and this was vital to get crystals. Um, but if you take a look at um, at the entire structure on the upper right-hand corner, you see that this has a very characteristic sort of like S shape. Um, if you go from the upper left corner and you follow this sort of like, so it's an S shape shape structure. It is so characteristic, if you go to the next slide, um, that you can find it in the map. So on slide 50, is an element that comes after which oligomerizes this. So you basically have an S-shaped structure that is followed by an oligomerization element. And on the next slide, you see all of the remaining domains that we also solved, but the shape of this n terminal S-shaped thing is so such that on slide 52, you can see that it can dock in five copies into this red cluster density. And so this is a really cool thing because the filaments that in the beginning Günther was um, talking about these tentacles that reach into the cytoplasm, this is how they are anchored on the cytoplasmic on the cytoplasmic side. So there are five copies, and um, this is difficult to see. So I have a nice um, schematic of this on slide fifty-three, where you have these tandem arrangements of these Y-shaped structures in yellow. And then there are these five copies of these red proteins that basically hold together these um, stacked Ys. and basically like you're holding um, um, holding on to them in the in the stalk, in the central stalk to basically uh, tether them together. And on top of four copies of that is an additional copy, a fifth copy, that is like sits like on top of it like a dome, and all of these elements basically get bundled by this oligomerization element and project these 2,500 residues of all of these different domains away from from the pore. And so this part basically annotated um, one part of the missing density. If you go to slide 54, the rest of the density then had to be um, accounted for by um, the entire cytoplasmic filament complex. This is the the structure that has this um, um, four-shaped hub and so um, this is a schematic that shows now the different proteins that are colored in, in different ways. And so we solved the structure of this element. If you go to slide 55, this is how this looks like. And I picked this deliberately because we have from this uh, particular interaction, we have structures from baker's yeast on the left, from the thermophilic fungus in the middle, and then the human structure on the right. And so you can look at it from all angles. They are basically, they look exactly the same. Despite the fact that um on the sequence level they're very divergence, or so nature at the end got stuck to basically maintain those. If you go to the next slide, um there's a, the the color proteins on the right, that's a 214, DDX19, gle one and 42. We also, if you go to slide 57, we also solved a couple of years ago all of these different structures, and um there's um there's um, an ATP cycle that is associated with how RNAs um, get out of the nucleus. I don't want to get into detail into this, but we basically solved the entire cycle of this. And at the end, um, if you look at the structure with the red box, this is an energy depleted state of how all of these proteins interact with each other. And so we we saw that this is the structure that is part of the of the of the pore when you when you purify. And nuclei, there's no energy. And so this is the state that we think is um, the state that we have in this um, particular structure. If we go to um, um, slide 58, what we are missing is the central hub, this four-shaped hub. It's four-shaped because um, of the similarity with this uh, complex that is in the middle of the port that has DFG repeats on that. And if you go to slide 59, this is the density that is left over Um, in this additional hub and you see sort of like this hook in the upper right-hand corner, you see like a long stalk followed by a kink on the upper part. It looks a little bit like a question mark shape, but it really is at the end, it's a hook. This is where this little hub goes. And on the bottom of that, you see basically how this mRNA export machinery sits on on the bottom of this. And there's um, a second view in the middle where you basically see um, the same thing. If you go to slide 60, the important thing is, is that the placement of this um, coil hub, or this four-shaped hub, is very close to this dark blue protein. And so we had solved the structure, and this is a really important element um, that anchors the the, um, the complex that contains these unstructured elements into the center of the pore. And so we wondered whether the the closeness of this um, means that um, this red protein that you see on the bottom is also anchoring um, the, the this, um, this four-shaped structure on the cytoplasmic side. And if you go to slide sixty-one, that's um, it's now a biochemical experiment, and I show you this because it is a really an amazing thing for me. So we had solved this channel structure, and um, you know you see the the individual on the upper right corner seed in alignment of the amino acid sequence. Um, of, um, of this protein that anchors the channel complex in the center of the pore that basically recruits these unstructured elements that form the diffusion barrier. And you see sort of like how conserved um, this element is because on the top is the sequence of the um, protein from thermophilic fungi, and on the bottom is the sequence from humans. And you see the key residues that anchor it are the ones that have this red sphere on top of it but there's LLLL next to it. These are leucine residues that basically are key to anchor it. So this red element, this um, element that you have here is shown in the structure on the bottom. This is the element on the lower right-hand structure that basically sits in this opening of this four shape. And so what we had done is when, um, um, when we solved this um, channel structure many years ago, We basically made a mutation where all of these leucine residues, these L residues, were mutated to alanine, and we showed it would no longer bind um, to this four-shaped structure. And the stunning thing is this. Taking the mutations from the thermophilic fungus, identifying the equivalent residues, which is only three leucines, not four. The middle one is is not conserved. We basically could test whether, first of all, this is the same element that recruits this four-shaped structure on the cytoplasmic side, and also whether the interaction is the same. And so I walk you through this data because we had, this is an, an, a very nice example, and we did this many times to validate sort of like the placement. So on the upper left-hand corner, you see sort of like this um, square box from one of the interaction ones that I've shown you now several times. This is basically the interaction of the six protein complex. That is um shown here on the bottom. And we asked the question if you incubate it with this little um NUP ninety-three element, this is this red element that is in the opening of the four shape, which is the sequence that is in the upper right hand corner, do we get a complex? And yes, you do. And you can see this in this little strips from the um, from the from the gel. There's this very strong band that is labeled nup ninety-three. And it does incorporate into the complex. The middle one doesn't have it. And the one on the right, after you incubate them, it basically gets there. We ask then the question, is the anchor side this call-coil version? So we get rid of all of these colored domains, and we only let, let these colonel um, coil elements that form this four-shaped structure. Um, and ask the question whether this binds to this 93. This is much easier to interpret, because you only have four bands in the gel. One on the upper band and the and the one that has the red dot on top of it is SNP93. The blue one is the four-shaped structure. If you grow, if you uh, incubate these two and inject it on the column together, you get an interaction with this. And stunningly, using the mutations that we came up with from the analysis with the ketomium proteins, you introduce these mutations in this 93 protein. You basically abolish this interaction. You see this on the right hand corner. And so that was basically showing that the anchoring that we could not identify um, in the Y structure, there's not an element like this, that you recycle this 93 protein in the human pore. You bind an additional copy of this to basically anchor it on the on the cytoplasmic side. And so this is what is shown here. You basically have these um, um, on the left-hand side is the actual structure with the um, um, uh, with, um, with the crystal structures um, and the M structures. And then on the right-hand side is the depiction of this. You see this four-shaped structure where this green element is anchoring basically this complex in the inside of the pore. And so if you go to the next slide, this is basically what was um, at the end published, where you see sort of like the anchoring of the red filaments on the cytoplasmic side that project all of these um, many domains um, away from um, from the pore. And um, of course also had um, the components that basically allowed the somatic core to at the end dilate. The paper contained a large amount of additional information that basically probed the the nuclear pore complex also functionally. We asked the question specifically how some of the pore elements are involved in mRNA export in in basically initiating um, translation. Um, on the cytoplasmic side, side, but this is at the end something that um, there's no time to basically go into all of this. The real thing at the end was this: is like um, we basically at the end essentially completed um, the, the, the having a snapshot or two snapshots of the human nuclear power complex. If you go to slide sixty-four, this is just a summary of sort of like what has happened over the last twenty years, going from the upper left-hand corner from determining um, individual porn structures, and this was a hallmark, this was how two proteins interact with each other, to elucidating how the entire Y looks like by piecing individual pieces of this Y together in a negative stain um, envelope, this is this grey structure, to six years later solving the entire structure of the Y. And then in 2015, what was really important is that we could identify the placement of the Y inside of the human pore, and that basically Um, for the first time linked the high-resolution and the low-resolution structural methods, that he could basically get a near atomic structure of the entire pore. We also, in very short order, solved um, the channel structure. We solved the somatic core, which is on the lower left-hand corner. And then then last year, we basically figured out of how the um, inner ring is able to dilate, completed um, the somatic core. Um, um, structure, and then also elucidated um, how the cytoplasmic phase is decorated by the proteins and also how some of the proteins are decorated on the on the nuclear side. And if you go to slide 65, this is the most important slide, because this is the slide that shows the people that actually have done it. The lab is an incredibly... Um, you know, going back to the to the discussion in the beginning, it's a family-like environment where everybody is basically collaborating with one another. This is a project that you cannot tackle by yourself. Everyone has their own projects in the lab, but um, everybody is freely sharing reagents, purified proteins, and so on. You can imagine that not everyone is able to purify every single protein from the poor. Um, And so I highlighted a lot of the people um, um, throughout the talk. Um, They are all incredibly talented uh, bunch. I'm also really um, um, proud of the people that are shown in the middle from Danielle all the way to Hannah. Um, They are fundamentally um, undergraduates and high school students. Hannah was a high school student when she was in in the lab who have contributed individual structures. I, I had a lot of undergrads in the lab. And high school students in the lab. I think this is something that um, I really feel very strongly about, to so basically give research opportunities. And then the people on the lower left-hand corner, really important. Tony Kosyarkov, I didn't really highlight all of the different things um, that we have um, done with them. He really generated a lot of antibodies for us to uh, allow a structure determination of key complexes. For example, the Y, the four-shaped structure, as well as the sweat, um, um protein that is anchored on the cytoplasmic phase um may daso och- who provided key cell lines for us for functional analysis, Alina Patke, who helped us with um, cell synchronization protocols and how to basically functionally test um, the pore. And also Alex Palazzo, who at the end is um, is a wizard in how mRNAs um, leave the nucleus. And of course, really important also on the lower right-hand corner, all of the people that basically bankroll this type of work and have basically um, helped us to basically um, um, get all of these advances to um uh, to actually um become realized and of course i thank you um um for 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 being here and for for your attention and i'm very happy to answer questions if you have any thank you very much
0: well thank you so much andre um this was um really an amazing presentation We got to learn so much today um how much work it was you know all the different steps and um and then all the details about the this very crucial component of ourselves um that um you know enable life as we know it so thank you so much for uh, guiding us through this you know abundance of work and and data and and um yeah beautiful structures, uh, it's really amazing. And uh, I want to invite everyone to ask questions. Um, and I wanted to check with you how many minutes you have so I can basically regulate yeah. how many questions. I
2: have, I have some time. I mean, if there's, um, I'm very okay. happy to answer. Thank you very much also, of course, again, for actually inviting me and having me here. This, uh, Yeah, thank you so much for, for, for giving me that opportunity.
0: Yes, of course. Thank you, Serena. Do you want to go ahead?
3: Well, sure. I, I, I just want to start off to thank you for what an amazing tour of course this work was, and and so many steps. Um, I I, I guess I'll start off with. Uh, I mean, it's fascinating to you know to think about how this thing evolved in its history and and the intricacies of all the pieces coming together for both the geometric constraints the functional constraints i'm i'm curious as you went through the procedures and, and you know i started thinking this uh, somewhere around slide 30 or so well, when when you got to the individual structures and you worked through the the structures structure interactions and you started to get uh, the pairwise interactions and in the pieces together, I'm wondering if how much of this along this 20 year journey just started to make sense because of all the functional and geometric relationships about, and, and yeah, you went through the systematic searches, but I, I'm curious uh, how much intuition and hunching had to do with and, and um, I mean, how much just knowing the, 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 the overall architecture and in the process of piecing, um, all of the individual proteins together. Yeah. Um, yeah.
2: So, I mean, first of all, the thing is this, this was, um, I mean, this is a relatively small field and, um, the people that are actually a part of the field can you know, also, it also has a very familiar sort of like uh, touch to it, you know. When people get together, it feels a little bit more like a family reunion than a scientific conference. But the fundamental thing is this: when I started um, working on this, I really had a chance to read all papers. There was maybe one hundred and fifty papers on nuclear porns, and there was like in the middle of the nineties. I didn't really go through all of this, you know, how genetic methods and biochemical methods open up sort of like the door of identifying proteins. And um, the the nomenclature of these things doesn't really lend itself to, you know, it's like sort of like intuitive way, what has to interact with what? Because um, somebody decided that uh, you you did not know what these, you knew that these proteins were part of the pore because you can make antibodies and they can show that they stay in the nuclear envelope, but you could not really at the end um, infer anything else um, really uh, from this type of analysis. And so each protein at the end had um, a number that um, was a molecular weight, which of course changes in all of the different organisms. So if you read the literature, it was really complicated to actually trying to make sense from all of this. But there was one data point that basically um, convinced me that this is fundamentally must be possible. And that is there was data from at Hertz lab who basically had discovered in, in, in the mid-'90s um, by pulling on one of the Y components that um, the entire Y complex exists in yeast, which was a stunning was a really stunning advance because they surprisingly found that this protein called sexartine, which is really important for vesicle formation and transport between um, the Golgi and the endoplasmic reticulum, is also recycled in the nuclear power complex. And then they in a subsequent paper which was like one of the papers that was not so visible which is a really important advance in the field was they made tiny quantities of this and they showed that they could reconstitute by mixing the proteins together this entire y-complex and they compared the pull out from cells directly out of the cell with the one that they had reconstituted and the two things basically looked the same it was easy to do in some ways because it had a very characteristic y-shaped structure structure. And that's why people at the end, you know, referred us to the Y complex. And so I think the, the dream and, uh, at the time, and I remember sort of like a lot of the conversations between Thomas Schwartz, um, who's a professor at MIT, I mentioned him earlier, who was um, um, a postdoc in the global lab, and, and Emil basically, you could dream, yes, it was clear, we are going to get that Y structure. Yes, it may take a long time, but we will be able to get the Y. The jump really was to basically say, we are going to also get the other pieces, and we're gonna put all of them together. That is the thing that at the end was not so obvious of how this would uh, be done, but this is at the end something if I look at this journey, we solved a lot of structures, and people when we reviewed uh, when we submitted a paper and got reviews back, a lot of people said, "Well, how do you know that this is really a state that occurs in the in the fully assembled poor it could be an assembly intermediate and so. The biochemistry was really the only way to basically eliminate these types of doubts in the presence of all proteins this is the interactions that you get and of course you can solve a lot of structures but individual structures in the end didn't really give you an important answer right i mean um, i remember it's like you know one of the graduate students in my lab Dan lin you know it's like he solved a really important series of, of um our structures of this protein that's very flexible, this orange protein. We had many different states of this, and this was a really important thing, but we really did not know what it was doing. And at the end we could put it all together in the envelope and I asked him so, do you want to be known as the person who solved the structure of NUP 170 with NUP 53 and 145 N, or do you want to be known as the person who solved the somatic core? So in the end, this is the way of how things went forward. I mean some of the things were stunning advances that I did not, I wish I would have anticipated. I mean, for example, we solved the Y structure. You know, we had crystals, you know, this was a journey for almost 10 years. And then eventually we solved that structure. And um, it was coinciding pretty much with um, the determination of a high resolution EM map. And so I asked, Dan is like, can you at the end see whether you can dock it into the pore? And to my astonishment, 20 minutes later, he sent me an image and he said, This is how it sits in the pore. It was stunning. They just readily docked in. Um, Of course, I mean, we had to repeat this then. It's like with a much more scientific way and it's like, you know, quantitative and so on. But it was very obvious of how it was there. Once the first thing was docked, it was clear that this approach of combining biochemical reconstitution with solving the key structures and docking it into the EM map, that this would ultimately be successful. And so in the end, there was a little bit of a race um, for this because we had the reconstitution going, we had the structures going. And so after we docked the the Y complex in there, we basically um, could um, um, get the somatic core there. But you could also see there some of the structures we basically Used every trick in the book of um, you know crystallography tricks, and um, we could not solve all of the pieces. Remember this question mark shape that had like a hole in the middle, because we couldn't solve the entire structure. And so then what happened is, this electron microscopy um, came came online that you could get um, side chain resolution structures using EM, and that basically bailed us out for a lot of these interactions um because some of these interactions were fundamentally they were they are not good targets for crystallography because these rubber bands that um uh, as i described them the, these um these linkers are basically strapped these large structured domains together they do that in a very cool way because they are sliding onto the surface and so what um what basically happens is it's like rather than to have lego pieces that interlock really tightly you basically take two lego pieces and you Put them together um, that they can still move um, against each other, and you tie them together with a rubber band so that they can rotate them against each other. And this is how the dilation went. And so, in many ways, the the things that we have been doing, you have to have some kind of blindside from this. You cannot at the end um, sort of like say, well, you know, it's like we're going to solve all of these structures and then we're going to dock them in, and then there will be an EMM that will be done. Is at the end you have to you have to have faith that at the end the advances that you make that you can basically make a story out of this. I mean, I just had a discussion um, um, about this with Stefan petrovic who was a graduate student in the lab. You know, was like, he, you know, asked, and I was like, you know, it was not so obvious until the very end that we could basically figure out exactly how how the inner ring is dilating but that basically fell out sort of like out of the analysis we could get one state and then there was another so can we do this and um can we dock it into this one and so you have two types of states one with a closed central channel and one with an open one and so this was almost a side product of the of the analysis but it's often an imp- incredibly important problem And short sort of like the power of um of um, structural biology because if you see it you actually really know how some of these things at the end work and so I would say at the end, um really this it was not of course obvious from the beginning that the thing is going to work and it was also not obvious that at the end um that the advances could be made at a time that um that were made. And many times I think you know the technological advances um in EM and the advances in in in, in um in, in uh in EM in like low resolution EM in tomography in and also high resolution EM structures really at the end bailed us out in, in, in getting these structures at the at the end together. I think where I'm where I take sort of like some pride in this is, is that I really at the end I was convinced it would work. I did not know exactly the details and I did not know what it is, but I at the end followed one of the advices. I think if there's I learned a lot of things from Günther. I was in the lab for um, for almost 10 years, but I think the most important thing I learned from him, he was always saying, you have to work on something basic. The basic thing from today is going to be revolutionary things um, of tomorrow, but also work on something that you can solve in your lifetime. And um, I really thought at the end, it's gonna take my entire life, if I'm honest. and. Um, it's a little bit, at the end, if I'm honest, it's a little bit also a bummer. So Martin Beck and I, we basically exchanged the data, and then we did not know what was in each of our paper. And so when the papers came out, I got in. Um, I got immediately the uh, text messages from this, like, holy cow, do you have so much data in in these papers? It's like, how could you be so relaxed about it? It's like, well, it wasn't so relaxed. I mean, <laughs> wanted to get it done, but then the thing is this:
1: and,
2: um, the editor um, that handled the paper at Science, so we basically asked, you know, whether they would be fine with us doing this independently, but in the effort of getting the best possible um, outcome and sort of like eliminate one round of publication, whether we they would be fine with us sharing the data with each other but doing the analysis completely independently. And you can see this in the papers that this also what happened. But the key thing at the end is this, all of a sudden, they basically made a special issue. All of a sudden, they had this big introduction. All of a sudden, Thomas Schwartz, who wrote a perspective for the papers, basically declared the structure to be done. And my first response was exactly the one for Martin. It is done, what I'm gonna do now. And
4: <laughs> it's
2: a little bit, it was like, you know, it's like you, I think um, some people at the end, you know, it's like you, um, you know, I have this when postdocs um, leave the lab, they go to some other place, and you know, you should feel this accomplishment that you sent them off to something, but there's also the thing that uh, they're gonna be gone. It's a little bit like you're dropping your kid off at college. Yeah, you're happy that they basically made it, but at the end, they're also going to be, in the end, they're going to be done. And this is in many ways of how I at the end felt. Of course, there are many, there are many different things you can still study about the poor. And, but I did not expect that this thing at the end would be done. There's a cool story about this is because one of the things that happened in Martin's case was he had all of the structures from us. And so doing the course of basically having experimental structures and docking them into the envelope, AlphaFold happened. And so AlphaFold, of course, allowed for um, an unprecedented way of predicting um, 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 structures. Martin was able to basically benchmark Alpha Fold with the experimental structures that were not available because they were not part of the training set. And he could know exactly where AlphaFold would do well and where AlphaFold would not do well. And so with that, he basically mm-hmm. the last pieces that we don't have experimental structures for, he basically predicted. And so he put sort of like the predictions into the into the remaining into the remaining you know, blind spots. You know, you have ninety-five percent of the puzzle done. You have a little blind spot here. You have a little blind spot here, and he basically filled these little holes with these predictions, and then at the end, basically finished the entire thing. Um, sort of like from from, you know, you you basically you could at the end finish it. But he really at the end it did not it did not hit us the entire time that we basically finished it. It was done there, of course, there are pieces there are pieces mm-hmm. at the end. I'm of course, you know for me, the thing is this I want to get experimental structures for everything. I want to get an experimental structure of um, a pore that is from one organism that is completely experimentally determined, but I think um, this is the foundation for all of the things that um, happen in other cases, if you think, for example, about in the ribosome, having a reference structure for the the large ribosomal subunit for the small ribosomal subunits then for the entire assembled ribosomes and all of the different states that were determined by ramakrishnan and by tom stites and by Leonard barn and all of the heroes sort of like of these advances you basically at the end it became to life after that but you needed to have the reference structure and you see that now also for the nuclear pore complex there was such a long discussion in the field very passionate discussion about different models and how this thing looks like and so on and people had different um you know opinions about this and all of a sudden this is totally calm everybody converged on the same on exactly the same architecture and um, it's just taken now at the end for granted there was just a nature paper published where you um a group in china has um, extracted from the from the from tomograms or from, from single particle analysis in the end, um, the ribosome basically caught in the act, trapped in the center of the pore. Nobody at the end questions, you know, whether the um the structures at the end correct. It is now part of the part of the uh, defect. But now the entire the entire time it was at the end, we are gonna keep flowing, we're going to make advances, we're going to go forward. In the end of the day It went a lot faster than I ever thought, and it basically allows us to at the end go for you know the next big things, you know, which is at the end how RNAs really leave the nucleus. How is this nuclear pore complex really assembled in the cell? We have a machinery of so many different components. How is this basically put together? How are transport factors basically regulated? You know, there's this cool thing that um, the pore is dilating. How is this regulating transport? You know, there's um many 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 questions like this that are now follow-ups that you could never have dreamed of uh, dreamt of 20 years ago to basically start to tackle. and um this is where the thing is um, at the end um you know this is the next uh, the next big journey to basically figure out how does this really work how is it involved in diseases how can you fix it and so on so no it's like it's, amazing. it's not yeah you know you wish you could design it and you could say we're gonna do this we're gonna do this we're gonna do this what I designed was at the end, we solved the why, we hopefully can dock it in, we're gonna do the reconstitution, and then we're gonna parallelize this approach with the people in the lab. I think the, the thing that I really want to highlight is it really takes a particular type of person to actually join an enterprise like this. I mean, I was very lucky that at the end, the students um, that worked with me in the very beginning, um, when, when, when the group was part of the global lab at Rockefeller, they joined me. I think they only joined me because Günther was at the end saying, this is amazing. You should be really doing this. This is a really big thing. But Günther really did not appreciate to all detail how complicated that ultimately would be. And I would have never been able to persuade somebody. He's like, why do you join me? But then it became really successful, and people joined this effort. And then, when when I started at Caltech, I mean, I was very lucky. I mean, there were some students who really, at the end, embraced the sort of like you know the pioneering aspect of this. Is like, yeah, we may be able to really at the end get this entire structure, like Dan Lin and um, Andrew Davenport and um, Stefan Petrovic and you know some of the some of the postdocs who were uh, at the end in the lab who really, at the end, embraced this idea. It's like, well, you know, it's like we're going to work very hard and hopefully the thing is going to work out. And um, in the end, it did work out. And it's a big, you know, it's a, it's a big, the way of how the science is done is actually in many ways, I think, very different. People ask me, what is the success of this uh, group? Where does this come from? I think it really comes from the camaraderie of the people that work together on something like this because it takes a certain type of person to actually do it in physics this is much more common you know the people who have worked on these huge projects like you know the higgs boson discovery and you have teams of you know um, many many people that basically work together in sort of like the life sciences this is not as common people basically work on their own little project and they basically try to make the biggest bang but this is sort of like a single person really cannot make at the end a really big splash completely by himself it's impossible or herself this is really impossible
3: it's amazing as you as you tell the story i can imagine this 20 year journey of um, such complexity you know be, hearing someone declare its completion would be its own first of a kind event. But this wouldn't. This one
2: thing that I can tell you that this is absolutely stunning. This is actually something I wanted to say this earlier, mm-hmm. but I, I then I forgot and I got a little bit off track. So when we published this um, the paper in two thousand sixteen, which was basically. Um, a coordination um, between Martin Beck and I. We basically it was clear that we could make this advance, and it was clear that he could make this advance. And we were talking, and then it's like, well, we are about to submit a paper, and I said, okay, let's make sure we submit it. And at that time, it was really in two weeks, you're done, and if you are not done, we are submitting anyway, and it would have been both ways at the end like this. And then the paper got published, and um, Science um, had a really unbelievably talented um, um, illustrator um, um, who basically illustrated the, um, 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 th- th- this cover, and um, um, uh, Valeria Altunian. And she is stunning because she really understood this very, very well. She made a really beautiful cover. And so when, when the other papers now got accepted last year, they basically also um, um um asked valerie to um, um the, uh, to design the cover and i had in the meantime um, hired valerie to basically make some of the animations from us and um, she knew more about the port than any sort of like you know casual person that sort of like works on this project for a little while would would possibly know and so that at some point we had this conversation mm-hmm when Martin, um, and I, and uh, and Valerie, and um, 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 uh, Dee Young, and um, and, um, uh, uh, Vincent, you know, the key people from science, basically at the end we discussed sort of like what would be on the cover. And Martin never questioned why she, while Valerie would know so much about the poor. It was just very natural for him. But then something amazing happened because we did not know what was exactly um, uh, in Martin's paper. We also did not have his coordinates. And similarly, Martin did not have the coordinates from us, and so we basically had some of the structures that he did not put into his map, and he had some of the alpha fold model he put into his map. And so, Valerie said, "Why don't you send me your coordinates?" And she combined it. So she was fundamentally the first one <laughs> who actually saw the entire structure. So she designed the cover.
1: Beautiful.
2: She designed the cover and emailed us sort of like, you know, the drafts of the cover. And my thing was at the end, it's like, "Gorgeous cover. Can you send me please the coordinates? And Martin said, yeah, can you please send me the coordinates? Because we <laughs> won, I mean, this was at the end, it's like, wow, this is like the poof, this is the thing of, um, how the thing looks like. She was the one who basically integrated this together because it was the same map. And so the coordinates were all on the same Mm -hmm. coordinates. You just had to open two files at the same time, and poof, this was the entire structure. And you could also see how how identical the two structures at the end were. It was exactly the same placement, the same everything. It was really at the end. And so she wrote a really nice nice blog about this. You know, how um, for her, sort of like being part of the nuclear pore structure as an illustrator was a pretty amazing thing as an experience for her as well. And she won a major award for the illustration. Illustration of the, of the issue and so on. So I'm very happy about, you know, that for her as well. She's really amazing. It's like amazing, you know, captures the the things yeah, and so on. What
3: an incredible, incredible story. She put it together. Yeah, but, I things.
2: mean, this is at the end something, <laughs> you know, the entire thing, actually, I think for me, this is something that I think is really the science people pointed this out, but, but for me is also this, I mean, Martin and I, we are, I mean, Some people are, you know, come and visit and "It's like like, you know, you two are really competing, or what is the thing that you're doing?" It's at the end we basically we work on the same problem. We are somewhat co-dependent because he, at the end, he solved the tomography structures, and we had the crystal Mm -hmm. structures, and so the two things are very complementary. But at the end, there's also. I think this is the way of how really science um, should be done. We basically, we freely shared the data. I had not, it it would not have crossed my mind in the wildest dreams that he would just run off and publish the, um, the result. It would not happen. It's like, you know, it's like it was a very scholarly way of how you basically make an unbelievable advance and in one, in sort of like in one big shot, which also then of course meant that all of the data that we had had to be published together back to back to back, everything is basically was published uh, at yeah. the end together. But this at the end, I will carry for me, this is probably the bigger, apart from sort of like the science um, advance and you know the, um, the fact you basically actually got done what you wanted to get done. This is the thing I carry with me probably for much longer. Even the fact at the end that it's like the science could be done in such a way, in an open way, a trusting way and um, in a very scholarly way. This is something you know. It will always connect. It will always connect me and Tim together, and will always connect the people from the lab together. And it's a pretty amazing. To be honest, this is a pretty amazing feeling. Much more so than the, than the than the advance. Which of course you know eventually it hits you that you know it's like the sadness goes a little bit away, and you say like you know, it's actually kind of cool that we made it happen. And it, um, and it well, of,
3: and as uh, you mentioned, you know, the completion of such a monumental effort
2: is is a new beginning
3: for so many follow-on questions.
2: Well, I mean, this is also, I think, this is something where the lab is is at an interesting junction in this way because now, of course, you can think about um, creative ways of how you can build this advance to basically launch a complete new field, right? mRNA export is one thing, MPC assembly yeah. is another thing. The disease involvement of the nuclear pores is another thing. The machineries that take the nuclear pores out is another one, and so on and so on and so on. The the, the mechanosensitive basis of the dilation is another one, um, and so I think th- oh, this yeah. is something. This is sort of like in in many ways, it's a golden time to basically look for the next generation of questions, which really is opened by having this um, this um, this reference structure.
3: Very exciting exciting time. Well, yes, I just want to thank you so much. Um, uh, Les, do you Do you have a question?
1: Sure. Uh, first, I'd like to say this is really great work. And uh, you know, it's, I'm, I'm not sure how any human beings can get such an accomplishment done. I mean, the combination of brilliance and the amount of time it takes of dedicated effort, just amazing, and I'm just amazed that Katarita was able to get this, uh, you know, this presentation for us and, and you here. Uh, my question is uh, about you mentioned ALS and problems with the pores uh, causing, you know, a problem with the. With the neurons. Do you think it's because they're not able to uh, replace worn out proteins, or is it because the protein coming out is misfolded in some way?
2: Um, that is causing yeah. the illness. Um, first of all, thank you very much for this nice sentiment. I think, you know, I'm at the end. I. Um, I want to very strongly sort of like you know um, highlight the fact at the end that um, this is um, a really I'm the frontman of an incredible team that basically has done this and. Um, there's also other people, you know, in the field that at the end also make major contributions. So I don't at the end, you know, um, want to sort of like get, get this impression that this is only me. But it's like yes, the people are pretty. For me, the people are pretty incredible who basically pull this off every day and have sort of like this this passion every day. To the ALS question, so um, there I um, I want to tell you about the different clues. So. One of the things is basically um, ALS and sort of like neurodegenerative diseases, um, sort of like a priori, did not have anything to do with the nuclear pore complex. And so one, um, and and here are the observations that at the end um, sort of like triangulate this at the end together. The first observation is, is that uh, Martin Hetzer um, at some point um, fed mice with um, um, a traceable um, um, nitrogen um, um, isotope that basically um, fed mice with, um, with food that basically was labeled in this way and then asked the questions, what are the longest lived proteins in the, in the body and in different organs? And that um, um, determined, you know, it's like what you would expect. The histones are among them, but in nuance, um, the nuclear pore complex were among the longest lived proteins. And so that is one important clue. The second clue at the end was um, when people studied the genetic basis of ALS, There are sort of like some things that um, everybody at some point has heard um, or likely heard is like superoxide dismutase is one thing. Um, But a really important um, 40% of the familial cases, there are 10% of the ALS cases are familial and 90% of the cases are sporadic. So the familial cases, 40% of those, are caused by an intron expansion called C9ORF72. That was discovered by, um, by several people, and there were major nature papers on this. And um, when you put this into flies, and you look at um, genetic modifiers of the phenotype, and you do an unbiased screen, what you find is that many components of the nuclear pore and many components of the transport machinery basically come up as, as amplifiers. There are many different ways of how this internal expansion at the end could work. I don't want to get into this, but this is basically at the end, I put the nuclear power complex into the close focus. The third one is at the end, the thing that um, you were, um, most people have heard in some way that you know neurodegenerative diseases have something to do with aggregates in the brain. You think about Alzheimer's and A-beta. You think about um, um, ALS. There are mutations that occur in a protein called TDP43 that generate um, um, aggregates in the cytoplasm, um, but also individuals who are affected by ALS and don't have mutations in TDP43 will have these aggregates, and this is what makes this interesting. Not just the cases that are familial, but also the cases that are sporadic. Ninety or ninety-five percent of um, um, uh, people who have ALS, with known or unknown genetic basis, have these cytoplasmic aggregates, and so. And the fourth um, um, clue that, um, that is important is um, there's a major program um, called ANSA-ALS that is um, um, headed um, by um, Jeff Rostein at Johns Hopkins. And um, he's basically interacting with patients. And um, um, what they have done is, is they basically generated a consortium, but they basically sequence um, people who are affected by sporadic forms of ALS get genetic um, information, genome sequencing. And um, when you compare those sequences, genome sequences with reference genomes, and you look for things that are either never occurring in the, in the general population or things that are incredibly rare, you basically, and you rank those, you basically come out with nuclear porns being really abundant among the top hits. And so out of all of these observations, and once you sort of like have this, you know, focus onto this, you basically start seeing this in all sorts of like different, uh, different scenarios. You basically um, could have a case where you get some nuclear porn variants that you inherit from your mother, some nuclear porn variants that you inherit from your father, which fundamentally are completely harmless. But the combination of those lowers the lifespan of the pores. So neurons at the end, Need to have pores that last for a very significant amount of time. There is some turnover, so these labeling experiments for Martin Hetzer indicated that not all of the pores are basically maintained, but a very large fraction, which basically at the end suggests that um, uh, neurons are not very good in replenishing these pores. This also raises questions about how the neurons actually notice that the pores are damaged? Because it's a really large machine. How does the cell actually do that? That's another big question. But fundamentally, that um, neurons have pores that need to last a lifetime, you're basically inheriting genetic mutations that fundamentally weaken the structure. Um, that over time, you acquire damage, and then the pores start failing the need for transport is no longer maintained. TdB43 is a protein that binds to RNA and shuttles constantly between the nucleus and the cytoplasm. In the nucleus, it's chaperoned um, by RNA, but in the cytoplasm, it's by itself. And if the, the cell doesn't have the throughput anymore for um, the required transport if, um, um, throughput, it basically will lead to an aggregation of the protein in the cytoplasm because the concentration will just at the end go up. Once you think about this in this way, then you would at the end say, well, cells that don't divide. So this is something I didn't say during the presentation, nuclear pores actually dismantle during the cell cycle. And they're really important um, markers, checkpoints um, for the cell that the nuclear envelope is, is, um, is dismantled. This is a chance that um, the pores are basically can get replenished from a new pool. You make new proteins and you basically put them back together. But if the cells are terminally differentiated and they are no longer dividing, the pores are not really easily taken apart and being replenished. And that's probably the reason why they are longest, long-lived proteins. But then if this is the case, you have to ask the question, so people that have ALS, do they also have other questions, other problems? Do they have problems with the heart and the caromyocytes? Do they have problems with their kidneys and and so on? And they have diabetes and so on. And yes, if you look at the medical literature, you find exactly those things. But of course, people are not at the end saying, well, you know, you have a weak heart. That's a secondary problem if you have ALS, because you're not gonna run anyway. And so once you think about it, um, these nuclear porn diseases in this way you then can answer the questions like well there are other neurodegenerative diseases that do not affect the motor neurons the motor um 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 the, the this neuro, uh, this little strip of this uh, motor cortex um but other parts and so you think about you know could other neurodegenerative diseases or other uh, um 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 uh, brain disorders really at the end have something to do with nuclear pons and the answer probably is yes there's going to be um um, a component, if the, the hypothesis is true for ALS, then you basically affect with different types of um, nuclear porn variants, other cell types that basically will have other stresses. And so I really think, once you think about um, the nuclear pore complex, of course I am at the end very porcentric. but once you at the end have this in your mind, you basically at the end, it provides a, um, an answer that is more accessible than any sort of like easy thing that I have read before, why is it that you get with some of these nuclear porn, uh, why do you get um, um, a delay of disease onset? Um, um, and why do you get born? And why is this at the end? Why is the pore functioning for such a long time? Well, I mean, if you have nuclear porns that uh, lower the lifespan and the cell cannot turn it over, that provides a nice um, a nice um, explanation for for why you have a 20 year timer that you basically set off. And um, I think there is, I mean, the, the, the evidence for this is, is by far by, by no means proven, but in, in, in cells, when, when you make from, um, from patient cells um, 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 IPS neurons, you can basically get um, a sort of like some end state, six weeks sort of like after culturing these neurons, you can start seeing um, TDP43 aggregates in, um, in a fraction of the cells. I think this is an interesting hypothesis that needs to be thoroughly tested.
0: (coughs) Yeah, thank you so much for for that explanation. And that's really interesting. I was thinking about, you know, progress that people made um, with mitochondria related, um, you know, uh, issues that, uh, you know, recently people achieve to um, transplant mitochondria yep. um, mm-hmm. successfully. <laughs> you know, the nuclear power is so essential. Do you see a future of addressing that? I, I would assume that also for aging, this is like a very, if we want to address healthy aging, that probably this would also be like a major target that we need to address. Like. Would there be a way of transplantation or is there maybe parts of the nuclear pore that are more accessible? And if you fix those, kind of the rest um, renews itself. So you could, you know, use the virus, because viruses use the nuclear pore also for access to the, to 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 access cells for their purpose. Would we be able to use viruses to kind of fix nuclear pores in, in organisms or maybe just in some organs that are affected like the heart or liver or something. Yeah,
2: so um, this is also there's a um, um, best answer for, the, for discussions at the end what other people have done. So we don't know really how pores are built and um, what the bottlenecks for these things are. But um, in some of the um, IPS neurons that you generate um, from patient cells, where you don't necessarily know whether the variants that are carried in the cell line actually are the, the, the cause for this phenotype is really the nuclear porn variants. This has to be directly shown by introducing them into cell lines, making them, and at the end, uh, directly showing this. But in these cell lines, um, patient cell lines, what you observe is that um, nuclear porn start generating phase separated um, 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 uh, droplets in the cytoplasm. And this is a phenotype that you can overcome by specifically overexpressing POM121. This is work from Jeff Rostein, where basically um, that indicates that POM121, which is one of the integral membrane proteins that anchor the pore in the nuclear envelope, is a bottleneck for nuclear pore assembly. And so um, that is a kind of a nice experiment because you can at the end see that the cytoplasmic um, aggregates or the phase separation compartments basically go away and you generate new pores. Um, but at the end, of course, you need to have a systematic analysis of how pores are built and that will probably open the door for totally new types of um, of, um, of therapies that basically would go at, um, you know, you generate new pores, what do you have to actually do for that? In the case of ALS, there seems to be a secondary problem, which is somehow, this is another hypothesis, it's also not completely proven, but I think it is... Um, uh, much better shown than the nuclear pore variants. So what happens is is that um somehow um the cell the neurons realize that there's something wrong with their pores. And that is at the end that is fatal because these cells are able to take out pores using an um a pathway that is dependent on a specific S chord components. Um, there's a particular factor called GIM7. This is work from um from um, Patrick Glass from Yale, that basically at the end shows that pores are basically taken out of the nuclear envelope using this escort pathway. And so in ALS, what happens is the cell realizes that there's a problem and then actually accelerates the removal of pores. At least that's a hypothesis where the pores, Jeff Rostein calls these pores injured in some way it's not really clear what the trigger for that is because you have to think about the machinery is a uh, big machinery how does the cell notice where is the bottleneck that the cell notices that um, the pore should be taken out and so one of the ideas is, is to basically at least to slow down the sort of like acceleration of the disease progression by basically eliminating chim 7 from neurons by making antisense RNAs or some other sort of like method to basically see whether this would at the end have an effect. But I think your question is a really good one, right? I mean, it's at the end, we now know how the thing is built. Can we, I mean, how it looks like when it's built, we have an atomic structure um, of that. Can we figure out of how the cell actually makes it? Because there must be certain factors that basically at the end, regulate the entire assembly of pores. In cells that normally divide, the pore number doubles during S phase. This is important because when the cell divides, every cell daughter cell needs to have the right number of pores. And this is at the end something that you can turn on by some mechanism. Can you, at the end is there a particular factor that is required for um, the novel pore assembly? I mean that would be pretty amazing if you would identify at the end what that is. But. Um, for the most part, this is completely untouched territory. We know very little about how a nuclear pore complex is built. We know virtually nothing about how the um, the cell actually generates this really complicated membrane structure where you fuse the inner and the outer membrane of the nuclear envelope by some mechanism, and um, how the nuclear pores are basically put into a put into nuclear envelope. We have been starting to work on this. I have a very talented postdoc, um, George Mops, who has basically been working on nuclear pore assembly for the last five or so years. But it's at the end, it's a very nice um, advance, and it basically opens that field. But um, there are many, many years ahead of us to figure out of how that at the end will work. And then you can at the end think about whether you will figure out of how to replenish pores. I think this is really important. I want to give one other example of something that at the end for um, proteins that are not turning over, that at the end gives you sort of like an insight in, in, in what that may mean for the nuclear pore complex. In patients that have um, a heart attack, there's a, a subfraction of patients that have a mutation in in, in this um, uh, calcium car dependent independent um, kinase type 2 that is really important for the regular heartbeat um, in cardiomyocyte. This is a kinase that um, decodes Um, uh, calcium oscillations when calcium washes inside of the cell and make sure that the heart is beating about once um, um, every second. When you have a heart attack and you have a mutation in this kinase, there's um, um, there's a mutation of um, some threonine residues to a methionine residue as a recent Nature paper, where basically a methionine residue sits at a really important location in the kinase. And what happens is it's like um, in the split second when there's a heart attack and uh, you know, the the blood oxygen level drops, um, the um, the cell is, um, is counteracting this and is basically generating reactive oxygen species that basically, Permanently at the end, label these, oxidize these methionine residues, and at the end, cause a kinase that is deregulated. And that is the cause for um, having, for the rest of your life, heart arrhythmia. And so, this is another one of those things where you have a very long lived kinase that at the end is required for a very particular function, but it's a much easier case. But, you know, I find it intriguing in this regard to think about, you know, that um, the classic ALS. Um, um factors that um, that were identified superoxide dismutase is really ultimately when you think about it um generating damage in the cell and the damage of course is the worst for machineries that the cell can no longer turn over and so there at the end i think i mean there's a lot of things I mean, that's why i'm saying i'm at the end you know once you have that seed in your head and you think about you know the um, um these machineries that are fundamentally need to last a lifetime yeah, at the end, you know, thinking about this in a in a non-pore-centric way, <laughs> for me, it's actually really difficult. So I'm, you know, you can look at lots of different diseases, but this is the case, but yes, I think this is absolutely vital, figuring out the machineries that at the end um, generate new pores and uh, regulation pathways that basically regulate this and turn this off in new ones and so on. It really gives an opportunity for, um, hopefully eventually sort of like, you know, replenishing these things and finding a cure, um, for some of these diseases. But we are really at the very, very beginning. This is not going to be around the corner.
0: (laughs) Yeah. And, and the, the, the tip of, you know, or the, the perfect storm is neurons. And heart cells yeah. that have to last a lifetime. I mean every other organ almost you can you know it gets replenished over time and it turned over the cells, but you know not neurons and not heart There's cells. There's another case. So and...
2: all of the nuclear many of the, of the nuclear porn diseases that are associated with um, variants that are identified is sort of like heart arrhythmias. Um, Steroid-resistant kidney diseases. There are certain duct cells in the kidneys that also cannot be replenished, and um, 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 uh, and, and and things like this that basically affect, ultimately, um, in the in the most part, um, cells that are terminally differentiated. And so they are expected to basically. Do this. So kidneys is another example, basically for that.
0: Yeah, is is the autoimmune disorders, is there anything known yes. about how the pores yes. are? Like, because I can imagine. Yeah, so here yeah. yeah,
2: for the, um, so there's a really terrible disease at the end. I mean, this actually, there's like two, there's two stories I can tell for this. One is, it's also part of this paper, I didn't get into this. So there is, um, in this red protein that is um, located on the cytoplasmic side, um in this S-shaped uh, solenoid that we nicely sort of like placed in. This solenoid contains um, seemingly easy mutations, you know, benign mutations, but they are associated with uh, acute necrotizing encephalopathy, which is basically a disease where kids um, are fine. They don't have a problem, no other problem. They get infected by the flu and um, they react to this flu in an incredibly violent way where they get a cytokine storm um, their blood cytokine levels are 100 times higher than a normal person that is um, that gets sick and so the immune system gets unbelievably aggressive, breaks down the blood brain barrier. the immune system goes into the brain and causes massive amount of inflammation, and basically um, that leads to these huge lesions where um, the immune system basically clears brain mass and these kids, go in a very rapid amount of time from being fine to, you know, having cold symptoms to basically going to coma. And a lot of them really at the end, um, I mean, they go through repeated episodes of those things and then at the end, you know, it could be fatal in, in many in many ways. And um the riddle in this case is uh, it's very clearly characterized as a very particular mutation in this you NOP358 know, protein that is causing this. And um the riddle is, is like why is um, a kid affected a testis mutation and sisters or brothers, uh, siblings um, of the, um, um, of their kid is not affected by this. There are other modifiers to this. What I found interesting is um, you may recall this in the very beginning of the coronavirus pandemic, there were these cases where some of the corona patients at the end had also cytokine storms followed by um, um, these brain inflammation cases. And um, that seemed very similar um, to, um, to, to anyone, to this um, autoimmune disease. And um, in fact, this is actually a lot of them, there was an effort in, in Europe, the, the AstraZeneca vaccine was never really um, that prevalent in the US, but it was very prevalent in Europe. And so there were these weird things in the very beginning when people got vaccinated, where Some of the um, very young um, um, vaccinated patients died of of COVID, and they really wanted to understand why, despite of having the vaccine, this actually caused this problem. They had these things with um, cytokine storms and so on, and not all of these um, patients, but some of these patients had um, very rare mutations that are very close in the vicinity to um, where these Ane1 mutations are in this protein. Um, and so it, hinting sort of like towards um, 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 a more common mechanism that um, uh, you know this, this is a protein that gets affected and you have some function that um, 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 that triggers an autoimmune response or a much stronger cytokine response. So I found it very interesting, but again, this is something where you know we, don't, we know way too little about what these proteins are doing. In the study that we published, we basically asked the question, when you eliminate this red protein, do you affect mRNA export, or do you affect the translation of the protein? Because um, we knew that um, the protein levels um um we basically because it bound RNA and so you knock out the protein and it didn't really cause a retention of the RNA in the nucleus which we would have expected, but it did cause a huge um reduction of um of reporter constructs and um, and their expression, which basically is uh, you know, tells you how little you know about um this entire pathway because it's like the first stone we turned around, we asked the question, is this protein involved in this or that? And it's like, it turned out to be really important in translation initiation, but nobody at the end ever um, implicated this um, um, in this way. And so there's a huge amount of basic science that is missing in this very particular junction. And it's like, you know, the question that I would ask, and sort of like ask sort of like you know, when students come to the lab and people at the end sort of like interview for for postdoc positions, I ask, and I was like, think about how many proteins you know are involved in the regulation of all aspects of the flow of genetic information, you know, from transcription regulation to DNA repair to splicing to um, you know ribosome assembly and uh, translation initiation and protein folding. And um, how many factors can you tell me are involved in um, in the life cycle of the RNA at this very particular junction where the RNA is before it gets exported, and when it gets exported, and when it gets prepared for translation? There's very little known. This is a real blind spot in the in the central dogma.
0: Yeah, I think that's really interesting, and I don't know if you know this. You know, very. <sighs> probably very preliminary data that is out there from, because we started this conversation with ALS, right? And the perfect storm with neurons and and um, that have to last a lifelong with the pores combined. They, you know, there were this preliminary results at NIH and um, I forgot his name he presented when I was a postdoc at Stony Brook. Um, he said, you know, we have this few HIV patients that um, that had actually familiar um, ALS, but they never got any symptoms, and they're in their 60s. And then they started looking into what this um, antiviral medicines could, how they could be involved in that. And then the, the theory was that, you know, it's kind of um, they... They kind of some press uh like the ancient viral um dna we have in our cells and that basically als disorders could derive from that do you think that viral dna um could be involved in either the process of you know a bad construction of a port like and call it a, lower construction of a poor that's kind of disrupting or or even if it's somehow um, participating in the construction of the poor that's just a thought i have right yeah. now it could be completely nonsense
2: impossible i want to say impossible to say we really you know the um, i mean there are some i mean there's we know very little about how pores are built I mean basically at the end this is at the level of people um have taken you know snapshots of um of pore assembly by electron microscopy, and you see sort of like you know pores are built from the inside out. There's like some factors that have been involved that you know you knock out you get uh, very specific phenotypes um at the moment we have no idea how many factors are involved in this and um whether RNAs can interfere with this. Um you know, there's um you know I think at this moment it will be complete speculation. What I can say from from our work is that um, what we found exciting, and this is not just I mean our work. I mean other people have also seen sort of like some of these things. That the transport factors, the and transport factors, and there's you know a family of sort of like 24 different proteins or so, that they basically play a role in regulating um, the interactions between nuclear ponds. and they are 100. Um, they are very obvious candidates to be full assembly factors, and um, which would basically um, you know eliminate one riddle. How a channel and the transport machinery could have evolved at the same time. Well, it makes sense because the, um, the transport factors are the assembly factors for the, for the nuclear pore that acquired additional functions. But um, I think there's a lot of surprises that basically uh, that are that await us here of how this is at the end regulated, what are all the components there. Um, there's, there's also not just one pore, you know, it's like the regulation of. Which proteins bind to the pore? What are the traffic lights? You know, do you really want to have a pore that is exporting RNA and at the same time importing RNA polymerase and things like that? I think there's a lot of things that um, that um, that we don't know, and I think at the moment everything at the end is uh, is possible. This is a really cool observation that at the end, you know, it's like you have some ALS patients that don't get any that don't get any um, phenotypes, and but I mean, you know, following this up is um, it's um, you know, it's so often it's very difficult because if you, at the end, you don't have enough um, um, you don't have enough um, you know, if you have a genetic tree and you figure out what the, what all of the components are of this, you know, like in the familial form of ALS, you have a, an entry point to basically figure this out, but for these rare cases where you know, more or less anecdotal, it's going to be much more complicated to figure out what is actually happening in these in these patients. And you know, the time span is not something that is um, lending itself sort of like, you know, for easy experiments, you know, you have 20 years of um, of time that you need to wait somehow to basically get a phenotype. This is not so easy to replicate this. Um, 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 in the lab. And so you can do this with IPS neurons and then, you know, in six weeks down the road, but does this really at the end mimic the, um, the things that are happening um, um, in vivo? Who knows? One thing that is an interesting thing to add here is, is that um, the mutations that you identify in the nuclear ponds in mice and in humans, that this is something that you cannot easily just transfer. So there is a variability among the, even the mammalian species it's not so easy, so you cannot just at the end hope that you make a mouse that basically carries some of the um, rare nuclear porn variants, and at the end, you're gonna get ALS out of that.
0: <coughs> yeah, that's interesting to know. <laughs> Thank you so much. And um, I don't know if you have time for one more person question. I, I know we, I could ask questions forever and yeah. ever and keep <laughs> asking, but we have a limited time, it's getting late and you talked for so long, so I give you, Abyss, if, do if you, have you have one
2: more question? I'm happy to do that, but yeah.
0: Yeah, yeah, I agree. I wanted to give Abyss, he, he waited so patiently, so yeah. Abyss, you have the last question.
4: Um. Thanks, Kat. Um, hi, Serena, and, and thank you, Andre. Um, I caught the last part of the discussion, uh, at least like the part, where, the last part where you're going through some slides, but some of my questions were answered in some way or another, but um, I guess like if I should ask a question, there is a slide that actually did intrigue me that um, there was some structural or at least like uh, from nuclear pore that actually does not go through significant change between saccharomyces cerevisiae and humans. Um, so that got me thinking, is there kind of like an adaptation, much like the CRISPR-Cas9 that actually prevents viral infection, um, not just viral infection, but sort of like an adaptive way of reorganizing, um, you know, those nuclear pores so that, um, you know, for an invasion of viruses cannot encode um, genetic material onto the, you know, single cell organisms, uh, much like bacteria. Um,
2: that's an interesting question. So I mean, sort of like the um, for context. I mean, of course, the nuclear pore complex is an incredible target for viral virulence factors, right? Because viruses, in either they replicate in the cytoplasm and they don't need to um, uh, go into the nucleus, but they have a big advantage if the nuclear power complex is not functioning twofold, because one is um, the cell, if the cell cannot make um, cytokines, it will basically not be able to warn neighboring cells. And secondly, if the cell cannot export RNAs, the virus can take over completely the um, translation machinery in the cytoplasm. Um, And of course, if viruses need to, at the end, uh, integrate into the genome, they need to find some way to overcome the pores. And so, um, in resting cells like HIV, where this happens in T cells, the pre-initiation complex actually needs to go through the pore and Martin Beck actually, um, uh, captured a snapshot. Of the HIV caps that stuck inside of the pore. That's actually the structure that we use for the dilated um, for the dilated state. The other thing is this is like the, um, the architecture of the, um, the fungal pore and the human pore, these architectures are very similar. And so the inner ring is basically identical. And um there's a small variations of the same theme. There was like a big discussion in the field at some point whether there's like one ring of the these Y complexes that form a structure or there's a tandem ring. And um, at some point it seemed like you know in, uh, humans have a tandem ring of two rings on both sides, and yeast only has a single ring. But it turns out that there's a sub fraction of the pores, about ten percent or so, that basically at the end has a tandem ring on the nuclear side as well. And um, these are pores that are associated with like, one of the proteins that decorates the nuclear nucleoside and um, most likely to prevent um, ribosomes from going through these pores. And so there's not just one pore in each cell, there's going to be different types of pores, some of the proteins that are bound, some of the proteins that are, they are not bound. But overall, the architecture is, is basically is basically identical. The question about um, the viral interference is an interesting one, because um, some of the RNA elements, so some viruses basically generate um, elements that are very effective in hijacking export factors. Um, One example is this um, um, CTE RNA that uh, binds very specifically to this P15 TAP or NXF1, NXF2 export factor. And it does that in a very effective way because it's basically, um, it is an internally symmetric structure that binds um, to two transport factors at the same time, and it's believed that um, because it can bind two, at the end it will be much more effective in in being exported. That element also works in yeast, so if you put this in, it basically will just at the end get exported in the same way as if uh, other RNAs will get exported, despite the fact that there is no N-terminal cap, and so. Some of, the, some of the things that, that you ask is, again, we do not know the answer, because we don't know very much about how RNAs at the end get out, how the pores normally carry out mRNA export in detail. And so I think that, um, personally, I think that the mechanisms for mRNA export is very similar between human cells and and yeast cells. And that is because all of the complexes, the cases and so on, they are basically universally conserved in all eukaryotes. And so this is another one of those things. The pores are basically, they're fulfilling a really important function in the flow of genetic information. The pore architecture is basically the same, the components are the same. And I would basically argue that probably the export pathway is also the same. There are some variations, so one example of a variation that um, is really important is um, in single cellular eukaryotes, mRNA export is regulated by this um, inositol hexaphosphate. This is a sugar molecule that contains that has um, all of the hydroxy group phosphorylated, and this um, this molecule, or in short, IP6, is important for tethering the one of the nuclear points um, onto a helicase, as part of the complex that I was shown. And um, this is, for a single cellular carrier, this is a really beneficial thing, because if the cell doesn't have a lot of energy, it will basically not generate a lot of the IP6 molecule, because putting 6-phosphates onto this molecule is very energy expensive. But in human cells, that does not happen. So humans, uh, the human pore, the human export machinery, has basically does not have this dependence on IP six, and that also makes sense because the concentration of IP six in the human body doesn't really change. It's always sort of like in the same, in the same sort of like you know um, micromolar range. But again, your question to answer your question, you would need to know how basically much more about how the poor normal functions and how viruses sort of like you know take advantage of some of the pathways but we really have not scratched even the surface on on all of these different pathways
0: yeah thank you so much and um yeah i want to give you a break now from us yeah but i wanted to point out that we are so thankful that you spent the time here with us today and shared all your knowledge like uh, the knowledge with us. And uh, we, I at least I learned so much today and had such a wonderful um, conversation uh, with you that could go on and on, as I said, but this was such a wonderful experience. I hope you enjoyed it too. And I also want to thank you and the whole team um, for doing this research and for Keep going yeah. <laughs> to do this research because this is such a crucial mechanism of uh, you know all of our life here on Earth and um, the 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 future that will be based on this um, on this research you know will hold um, so many you know promising um, probably cures for. For different diseases, but also just having that knowledge is, is so crucial. So thank you so much for everything. And um, yeah, we hope to learn from your lab a lot more in the future. And maybe um, some of these questions that we had in the end today, will get answered in our lifetime. Uh, thanks to you and your wonderful team, thank you.
2: Thank you very much. It was really a pleasure. Thank you very much for having having me. I really enjoyed it also. It was, you know, otherwise I wouldn't have spent that much time. It was really great. Thank you so much.
3: Yeah, and I just wanna thank you as well. And I really wish, um, wish you the best in your finding all of the follow-on questions that come and uh, I look forward to an exciting future. Thank you
2: so much. Thank you. Thank you very much. Bye.
0: Yeah, bye. And um, thank you everyone for asking questions, for coming. And I hope to hear you all again soon. And, um, and I hope we stay more or less in touch in the future. I know we must be very busy And um, yeah, thank you everyone. And I'll close the room in three, two, one. Bye everyone. Thank you.